Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. You had to be there, the performance rankings, a slight tangent, and the crappy quiz. Have you ever done therapy, Adrian? Specifically related to the crappy quiz, though. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Morning and welcome to OTBAM. It's half past seven. Shane, how are you getting on? Morning, how are things? Colin, good morning to you. Welcome back to the studio. Hey, good morning. You were trying to, uh, we were, he forces us before every show on a Friday morning to indulge him in some nonsense or other. And this morning, Shane, yeah. it was about, can, can people guess what my, my ring walk was for my wedding? Apparently this is a thing before the dinner, people walk into a Yeah, this is song. news to Shane Hannon. Well, I'm, yeah, I have, I'm not married. I'm the only one in the room. Have married, you ever been so. to a wedding? I have, <laughs> I have. I've only been to like three weddings. Well, no wedding. way! Yeah, yeah, three or four weddings. I'm going to touch really? I'm going to be a best man for the first time next year, which is. Oh. And I've never even been to a stag, and here I am trying Name to your three weddings. weddings. Name three weddings. Name your three weddings that you've been to. <laughs> All cousins. Ah. All cousins. Um, yeah. The best man gig is the worst gig. Go on. Is it's it? the worst gig on the day, Shane. Oh, I'm supposed to be. Because you're there's a big calm, calm me down here. Well, you're a funny guy, so you're, you'll be fine. Yeah, but like, there's the, you're the only person. And you know, who, of the group of people that would give a speech, who the crowd are sort of like, who sit back and fold their arms and uh, go, "Come on, make me laugh now! Come on now, tell me some stories." There, everybody else, there's goodwill towards. You're willing, you're encouraging. They're laughing when it's not even funny. Whereas the best man, tough. Gig. You need the right amount of jokes and seriousness as well, don't you? Yeah. There's a balance there. You can't have um, can't have too much to drink. Yeah. Before you do it, I know. I already know my first joke. Jeez, I'm not used to talking into microphones. Hey, ah. I'd be like. Yeah, yeah. No, is anyone? Oh, uh, to be I am. Is anyone, anyone there? Yeah, anyone? Sports? <laughs> no. I was okay. just looking at Jojo's face as soon as uh, aging that little gag there. Like, what are you doing? Stop! Get off the microphone. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but this all stemmed anyway. I was at a wedding last weekend, and the bride and groom, their entrance song was "Put Him Under Pressure." I've never seen an atmosphere like it at the wedding. It Fantastic. was unbelievable. What a it shout. was such a great shout. And actually, when the first bar of the song played. Everybody looked around being like, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. And then the atmosphere rose and rose and rose. And they actually waited to come out. So the, the best man and the groom's people came out first. And then they waited to come out for the first bar of the course. Oh, my God. Goosebumps now. Thinking Shout out it. to the couple. Shout out to the couple, John and Laura, having a great honeymoon as we speak in Barbados. Oh, Not watching us, then, I presume. Um, what... Um but you were, you were, he was sort of shuffling through YouTube then to force us to listen to the song that he had. F and ads on YouTube, like it was perfectly timed. They were, they would have started the show with my entrance song mm. from the wedding, but what we was just it? didn't. It's Curtis Mayfield, Move On Up. Give us a bar of it there. Um, I can't do it justice. And normally I have no problem singing, but I just couldn't like. Did, you, did yourself and your wife come to that song uh, agreeably, or was it one yeah. person was into it more than the other? We actually had California Soul selected right up until the week of the wedding. And then we played California Soul over and over again in the kitchen. And we we're like, oh, it kind of dies out a bit after 30 seconds. So we need something else. And then Move On Up just came. Just came. We only like, like Cullum to analyse something so deeply. Yeah, like We played it incessantly in the kitchen to the point where it started to annoy us. And then we didn't <laughs> have it anymore. <laughs> so uh, I know it's a, it's a great song. 
I highly recommend people uh, look it up now. Move on up, Curtis Mayfield. Hopefully the YouTube can ads you, won't get you. Can you sing it for us there a little just, bit? Just, you just asked me that. I can't. Uh, <laughs> he won't. I'd say I can't. I'll just reiterate I actually have it here. Look, it's playing, but it's on right, silent. Well, that's, that's, that's I sent it to the WhatsApp group there, so whatever you want there, you can listen to it. Uh, Manchester United last night, I thought, oh, you know, I was sort of... Um, I really enjoy a Thursday evening where there's a, a Europa League match on or a yeah. League match on and you can sit down you have the laptop out you're doing a bit of prep for this morning you're watching the game and I thought I'd sort of half tuned out for a while mm. to be honest they were 2-0 up they were cruising it could have been 3-0, 4-0 I thought this would be a straightforward conversation with the lads tomorrow um, but what the hell happened to them? Last 8 minutes 10 minutes it's Just bizarre wasn't it? Fell asunder it's Like what could go wrong will go, and, and shall go wrong Two OGs now. It's a bit sort of the first half you're thinking this is brilliant Two could, have, could have had a hat-trick in yeah. 17 minutes and then, eh? yeah, and uh, uh, Tyrell Malazia could have made a 3-0 in the 82nd minute and took one touch too many and it looked it looked happy like I actually I went to bed after an hour and watched the rest of it on my phone and was like oh this is going to be standard 2-0 mm-hmm. maybe 3-0 mm-hmm. and then Dave McIntyre woke me from my near sleep when Sophia got one back He's a great voice, Dave McIntyre, for commentary. He, does he did his job exactly because I was about to nod off and he was, oh my God, so he have scored. Mm. And then I was glued to it. Mm. And they could have won it in the end. The, uh, Strange game. The, because United started so, so well. Yeah. And Anthony Martial was brilliant when he what? dropped deep. Um, that skill he did. He did two showboats in one. <laughs> Soccer AM would have a field day if they could show it. The, the nice little flick twice. Um, and they scored from that. And then he set up the second goal directly with mm. that through ball. And then Jaden Sancho, who was very poor, he scored after 30-odd seconds. Yeah, disallowed. Yeah. But there was loads of chances. And Sofia were brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Like, their bottom half of La Liga. But it just goes to show that this, the curse of the last 10 years of United and that culture is just not gone yet, is it, Shane? No. You'd, you'd be concerned about them. Um, and there was so much in that game to, to enjoy. Gonzalo Montiel diving every two seconds. Mm-hmm. Going down and hold I thought Casemiro was going down and off. He lot. was a lot as well. And then there was a little uh, argy-bargy uh, literally between uh, Anthony and Argentina's Acuna. The little bit of a battle there and they shook hands when Anthony was taken mm-hmm. off. Bit of respect uh, back and forth. Um, and then just towards the end you're thinking what's going on? Like Bruno Fernandes is a yellow card as well. He'll miss the second leg next week and he got a nothing yellow card for a for handball that was maybe the ball was smacked at him from six, six inches away and he was turned the other way. So how that was a yellow card is beyond me. Um, well, I think the referee deemed that it was your man was having a pop on goal and the arm was up. And I think uh, for, I think a free kick was sufficient. Yeah, right? yeah. funny bone, funny bone, yeah, funny, not funny about not it. Funny now. Yeah. Um, and then the, Lissandro Martinez Achilles injury is um, that was That's that I'm working with. That was the most worrying one because I think even Paul, like Paul's goal speaking after the match and he was like, "Ah, look, United should be fine. This is a crap Sevilla team. They're thirteenth. United can in La Liga and United United can go over there next week and still get through the tie." But then you look at Rashford being out, Martinez being out now. There's a concern around Varane after the knock last night as well. Um, like Malassi's defending for the for the goal was Brutal. horrendous. But there's nothing Maguire could have done for this. Oh, it's it's like, it just it couldn't have been anybody else. There's li- li- ah, yeah. literally nobody else in the world of football that would happen to. It, it, the headers go out for a corner, and it's impossible to be, corner flag. It's impossible to be too critical of. I would say Malassia for the way the goal was scored, not. Not the missing, the getting rid of it. Oh, bit. that was also the a second freak bit was of nature, freakish. Yeah, but the Harry, the Harry Maguire bit, like there's a split second there where you do see most footballers kind of have some reaction, get out of the way, rejig themselves. It does often end up in the net either way, but with him, it was a total shock uh, that yeah. the ball hit him straight in the head. Uh, like it could, it could only so be. Late. No, I mean, I don't know. There's nothing he could do. 
I does nothing he could, I, but I'm I would, fairly it would, sure I'm fairly it would only, sure that's it would true. only happen to Maguire that the ball yeah. would go in yeah. if that had hit Martinez or Varane's head or Phil Jones's head like it wouldn't have got in it wouldn't have got in um, it's, it's easy to rush to a lot of conclusions about um, what happened last night I couldn't leave with any other sense than like it wasn't a, it was really unfortunate <laughs> like sometimes yeah. you just have to leave a game and go well that was really unfortunate like two OGs they should have been like Anthony's at the uh, upright at some point or another oh, it's a great effort actually um, yeah. inside it's, of the it's top a repeat post. of the effort yeah. that he has like yes, four or five, yeah. ta- five yeah. every single game the Aryan so. rabbit of modern football yeah cuts in yeah. off the left curls it around he's going to score a load of whirlies but he's also going to miss about 99 out of 100 yeah chances. I have no problem with those efforts on goal yeah, he, he could have passed that but it was a good effort I thought it was a good decision to shoot because he's so good in his left foot and then he used all, all five subs so he couldn't he yeah, couldn't down to 10 men with Martinez with uh, his sound Argentinian teammates helping him off the Sevilla lads were delighted to get him off it's like their best defender because there was a moment after an hour when he makes the triple sub and Veghorst is one of them and United are 2-0 up still and Veghorst presses Bonoing the go- in the goal yeah. and forces a goal kick and everyone's cheering on yep a bit of pressing and you think at that point well United are going to win 3 or 4 at least nil here mm. um, oh yeah so the fact that it's finished 2 all is a disaster to be honest well, they, uh, Dave and Jerry Armstrong and commentary again were saying they were sharing their surprise that Bruno Fernandes has taken off when he was the 62nd minute and it was 2-0 and it was very comfortable yeah. and in fairness to them that was in hindsight they said it then and there when United were very comfortable and Fernandes was not happy about being substituted and now United have put themselves in a difficult position I, I don't know if that look the triple change might not have been the absolute catalyst for what happened because mm. for 20 more minutes afterwards United continued to be dominant it was only the last 5 minutes or so where it all went haywire but now what's happened is the return legs next Thursday <laughs> and then a couple of days later, they have the FA Cup semi-final against a very, very informed Brighton. So they put themselves under yeah. pressure. Well, Sevilla seemed to be this bogey team. Like I was, I was. Uh, I see what you did there. Full circle. Mm. Um, I was in Old Trafford a few years ago. Which was it 2017 when Sevilla knocked United out of the Champions League on that infamous yeah. Jose night? Marino, yeah. And like the the atmosphere that night was putrid. One of the worst I've ever experienced at a match. But like it was made, the point was made last night. Sevilla every time they've reached the quarterfinals of the Europa League, mm. they've gone on to win it and. You have that fear now that they just someone's yeah. going to click into gear for them between now and the end of the season because La Liga is essentially done for them. Mm. You know, it's now about avoiding relegation. I think they're five points off the the bottom three. So next week is huge. Momentum is with them. They are the ultimate Europa League side, aren't they? And I, I, only, I was only reminded of that when they got one back last night. It's like, oh, yes, Sevilla win this thing like yeah. every other year. Themselves and uh, and Tottenham, as um, Bobby Dwyer, good morning to Bobby, is picking up on a comment that I made yesterday, saying Manchester United are a bit of a spoof club, to be fair, Adrian. I thought that. That's what he's done there. Um, um, lads, sorry, I'm just watching the Malassio on goal back again. It, it's unreal how that happens. I'd yeah, say yeah, 99 times out of 100, it doesn't go in. Like. It's a point that's picked up by Nigel Gallagher. He says, I like laughing at United as much as the next guy but they were just uh, ex- they were they not just extremely unfortunate the last few minutes last night albeit uh, from a bad Malassia mistake and they should still go through I'm with you up until that last bit because um, I do think there's a bit of uh, that momentum that could be with Sevilla we shall see um, how that plays out over the next while here's what's coming up for you uh, over the course of the show this morning we've Ronan Agara live on the line from La Rochelle um, after a couple of very interesting weeks for his club and um, I'm sure an interesting month or so ahead as well so we'll talk to Ronan in a few minutes time Art McCarrick is from Motorsport Ireland and uh, will join us just after 8 o'clock this morning to look back on the life uh, awful uh, news yesterday with the passing of Craig Breen um, in testing for a rally at the weekend and we will talk to Art McCarrick about the life and times of Craig Breen after 8 o'clock this morning Ken Doherty is going to be with us Shane He's, what's he previewing the, the, the greatest sporting event of the year the World <laughs> Snooker Championship 17 days of paradise I'm heading over next week so 
I knew you would tell it better than I would. Yeah. Um, Anna Kaplis will talk to us about the resumption of the Women's Six Nations this weekend and also obviously to reflect on that uh, story in the Telegraph yesterday and the Greg McWilliams comments that uh, followed. So Anna Kaplis has been in the squad up to very recently, will be with us just before nine. And then Naradine Chowdhury will be with us at ten past nine this morning. Uh, he's basically become a friend of the show over the last couple of months and uh, an expert on all things United has just, so we'll ask him obviously about events last night, but more to more importantly, that has just uh, published his book, Inshallah. United and uh, we will talk about that really interesting read uh, just after nine this morning and then Fiona Thomas uh, who was on the show last night she was the author of that piece in the Telegraph um, in relation to the RFU and uh, that will be with you with Richie from half past nine this morning I did want to touch on one of the other big uh, topics of the week as well that's cropped up in a few different spheres uh, spheres in relation to abuse. Uh, we talk about it, obviously, being a social media phenomenon, and it is, but it's also all around us. It's everywhere we look. We've all been in company. Someone has said something that challenges our urge for inclusiveness, and we've all awkwardly shuffled when that joke, uh, joke gets told, uh, that anecdote about this one time that gets rolled out, and that meme drops in your WhatsApp, and we've all awkwardly shuffled, and we've all been silent. And we weren't uh, expecting it at that time, of course, so we weren't prepared and we were silently protesting inside. Uh, but your silence was no good to uh, Lee Chin uh, last weekend or the Leitrim lads or the Irish women's rugby team who were told who gives a fuck about women's rugby. Uh, when Jason, Jason Sherlock uh, said during the week that it was isolating, it was isolating and it was embarrassing. Did you hear when he said that? Can we be open to hear it? Isolating and embarrassing. J.O. said that he was really encouraged by the response of Lee Chin's uh, teammates. They didn't shuffle and they weren't silent. They were straight on it. They called it out and it gives licence to the rest of us uh, to take our lead from them. And it's okay to learn the job for us and it's um, to learn from that, to call it out wherever we see it because we will see it and you will see it and you should expect it. We changed our culture uh, in this country over the last number of years. We changed our culture with the spoke, uh, smoking ban. We've had major societal revolution in the last 15, 20 years. We've given a basic human right to our LGBTQ plus community. We've dragged a church kicking and screaming to account over the most awful abuses. And now we can do all of that for a group that we know feel, because we've been told they feel isolated and embarrassed. So it can be done. The GEA's ban of less than a year for uh, for racism or for racist abuse won't kick it out. Jason sh- uh, says uh, that we shouldn't tolerate it when we see it because it's isolating and it's embarrassing. And whatever the abuse, because we will see it and we should expect it and we shouldn't be silent. And they were my thoughts on the uh, bits that crept up during the week. So uh, if you have any thoughts on that... Uh, do fire them into us and we are happy to um, read them out this morning one way or the other. So, um, anyway, we'll go back to the game last night because there's a lot to, lot to pick through. Um, you know, the injuries, obviously, there was a big aspect to the narrative, obviously, into the game last night about Marcus Rashford and how exactly Manchester United were going to, be co- were going to cope with that. And for 83 minutes, I think most people were thinking, well, this is going to be absolutely fine. This, there's nothing to see here. They can cruise through to the end of the season. They'll, on this form, they're going to secure Champions League football. I do, I mean, I felt, I felt a little bit with the Chelsea game, um, earlier in the week. There was a large period of that where I thought, actually, Chelsea are going to be fine. Frank Lampard in his lovely, natty <laughs> baseball jacket. He's, Looked he's the part, got this yeah. thing covered. Um, and I felt a big part about that. Like, I, I do think that we can be in sport very quick to rush to major conclusions on the basis of a game and I mean for the basis of most of last night injuries notwithstanding they'll be grand I think so I, well, you mentioned it Colm like Anthony Martial was good I thought very good in fact in, in parts last night especially in his involvement in the goal um, and 
even when he moved out wide to collect the ball and, and went deep, Sabitzer pulled into that number nine role and kind of covered it off quite nicely and got into those positions where he could get on the end of uh, passes from the likes of Bruno and, and himself, Martial. It was working. Um, don't know if it works anymore with Weghorst. I think that that mm. is over possibly. Now Weghorst will probably still score it. Maybe one or two. Chen was the question. Uh, I know that you were uh, possibly in not. a party son sort of um, <laughs> like. No, 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 never with Weghorst. Uh, he. he he, he was okay in like the likes of the Carabao Cup final and was involved in different moments, but his goal scoring numbers just aren't good enough. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's a lot to be optimistic about for United from from last night. Um, De Gea's performance was was pretty good. He had had some flaky moments recently. We, we mentioned Martial, Anthony as well. He can be the most frustrating footballer in the world, and yet he's involved in so much. It's positive in in, the, in an attacking sense. Maybe his end product leads a li- leaves a little bit to be, de- to be desired as well. But I think there's a number of positive things. When you see when you see Martinez hobbling off and you're thinking, like they forced away this weekend, they've the FA Cup semi final, mm. they've potentially a Europa League uh, to play out as well all the way to a final and it looks like Juventus possibly, if not sporting Lisbon in the semi finals for United if they're to get past the Via next week. And then they run into the season where you're trying desperately to get a top four finish. That that Martinez injury could be um could be significant, especially when he's that left sided centre half as well. He's kinda of just blocked off that position really nicely. You probably bring in Lindelof Mm. possibly and move people over Shaw will slot into where Malassia is and Malassia just didn't fill anyone with confidence I don't think last night so while there are negatives I think they're still very much in the tie and you'd expect United to get through still mm. I think Harry Maguire if everyone's fit now after Martinez's absence and Varane's fit let's say I think Maguire will be the chosen one because mm. again to reference Dave McIntyre for the third time at the top of the show um, he made a very important point which I didn't realise that uh, Maguire in the last 10 starts that he's representing United, they've won all 10 games. Mm. And you obviously represent Harry Maguire with a bit of like calamity. And I was just saying to Phil outside in the office beforehand, just like looking at the papers here and Harry Maguire splashed all over the back pages of the English papers. He just has that face of sadness and disappointment. That I he, kind of fairness, feel, it's a face he does very well. I, and he, he has he it does, even when they he, win. He like. owns it. And I, I, I just can't help but feel sorry for this multimillionaire. I just can't uh, help it. Like he seems like a good guy, and he just—he's always in the—he's always in the wheelhouse of misfortune. He's was just there? there. Um, was there? Was I reading too much into it? Or was so the so with the Malassia slip that led to the goal? Mm. Obviously, they replayed on uh, Virgin last night, where they the, without any commentary of it, where uh, you have the hair shouting away. You were asleep at this point. Um, and, they woke uh, me up. And. Um, you know, you were like, oh, you know, and then you could see De Gea after the game. Oh. He's like storming, in my, my mind, storming down the tunnel, really annoyed about something. And then you could see, was it Fernandez and Anthony who were having a chat coming off? And they were, you know, doing the whole, like, yeah. oh, something really important to say here, but I can't say too much. I can't tonight. be seeing anybody. But it felt like they were gesturing about, I could be reading too much into it, but it felt like they were gesturing about Malassia's slip. And how could he, how could he do that? Mm-hmm. Like his teammates must be going... You know, I must I've lost total faith in. Yeah, he had a terrible time. But even the decisions of the ref, I mentioned the Bruno yellow card, but um, and I, do, I actually think the ref got this one right. The Lamella incident where he, where they were checking the VR yeah, possible red card. Yeah. I think I don't think he stamped down enough mm. in order to say that was dangerous. At half time, some of the pundits were even saying it could have been a red card. But, but look, it was one of those. You're not going to complain if it's not. Yeah. Um, but I think you could see by Ten Hag's face when the when the first goal went in. His, his his face didn't change from the second goal, and he knew that, that this was a wave that was just yeah. It, coming. It, it is a bit concerning, Shane. I, like I would say, like it was interesting hearing your kind of overview of the season so far. And mm. for me, it's like look, undoubtedly, Everton Higgins improved the situation at Manchester United. I don't think anyone can really argue with that too much. 
Um, I know the points difference actually from this time last season isn't actually too significant, Huge, no. but it's just what he's uh, represented and what he's brought a bit of structure compared to Ralph Ragnick last season. You know, it's chalk and cheese. But the concerning thing I would say, if, if you're of the Manchester United point of view, is that they seem to have peaked mid-February, mm. and ever since the League Cup final, you know, comfortable win against Newcastle, they just haven't been convincing. And obviously, there was the nadir of the seven-nil drubbing at Anfield against Liverpool. But even then, in, in matches that they've won, like the the three-one win against West Ham in the FA Cup, that was actually the first game after the cup final. So you forgive them for a bit of sloppiness there. They weren't great. They repeated that scoreline in the following round of the FA Cup, three-one against Fulham. That's when Fulham lost Mitrovic and their manager as well got sent off and again they weren't too convincing the last week's been better they were decent against Everton in the 2-0 win they beat Brentford 1-0 and Brentford was surprisingly well. poor yeah. so look they, they've slightly improved in the last week or so but the only fear and I would say hopefully they'll replicate this again from a United perspective and next season is that for three quarters of the season they've been good after the power show of the first two games of this campaign but next season they probably need more stamina and an improved squad actually there's still loads of areas of that team mm where United and Ayrton Haig must be looking at thinking we can do an awful lot better than this. Well, So I, I would say the report card for, for me is about a 7 out of 10 so far for United this season. You, you look, you're looking at a Kane or an Osman to come into that forward line. Could they obviously need a striker in that position? Mm. Like Jude Bellingham all of a sudden, Liverpool's not happening. He'd probably want, want to go to Man City or Real Madrid first, I'd imagine, but United or possibly a third choice there for Bellingham you'd imagine I'll bring you to the uh, back page there we go this morning Shane Byron keen to swoop for Kane ahead of United bid Byron yep uh, Miguel Delaney uh, the, uh, willing to test the uncertainty at Spurs by getting in ahead of United with a uh, persuasive offer uh, for Harry Kane uh, he says that it doesn't normally fit the youthful profile of a player that uh, Byron might like to bring in but they'd be willing to make an exception for the 29 year old could be tempted by that just what do you mean? England captain maybe might be the only sort of I need to be around the FA put a little bit of pressure on yeah unless he wants to win a Champions League with Bayern or something potentially yeah just before um, we go to Ron Nogara who's here ready to Colum, yeah. shifty lad um, just played those two songs here Colm you and your boss went with the right decision good stuff mm. Curtis Mayfield move on up the song of the day Wow. Uh, also Ed Maloney saying that he was best man at two weddings and used the same scripted speech for both just added a couple of jokes it's a tight line to keep them just clean enough in front of the uh, bride to be and I presume general, the general audience mm. nice bit of advice for you there for you Shane keep it between I, the ditches I think is really right. what so that's, uh, if anyone has any more best man speech advice please send them my direction at ShaneHannon01 on Twitter I'm, I'm, I'm pretty desperate I've only got to November next year to get this ready November 12 months November 2024 uh, I think it's November. Sorry, folks, Evan and Ashley, if I got that wrong, but uh, the wedding will be on next year anyway, and I'll be there. Sure, look. Seven, Colm, thanks for coming in. That thanks was very much for having me. Hugely enjoyable and entertaining, so and your music, the lads make it so easy, your music. You make it easy. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me. Well, 7.52, Ronan Garrett, good morning to you. Uh, yeah. Good How morning. are you keeping? <laughs> I'm trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> have you ever had to do the best man gig? <laughs> Uh, I have, yeah. November 2024. Is it? Wow. Like. Any advice, Ronan? <laughs> preparation and preparation. <laughs> <laughs> he's not, he's working a season ahead of himself. It's, here. An, it's an individual gig, a bit like the number ten role. Like it, you're like a fly half, essentially, in a big match. No, no, no. no you don't have a leg to stand on. You're way off. And I'm not entertaining it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's too much. It's eight, well, it's what nine o'clock in the morning here, eight o'clock with you. You're going to be turning people away from you. You want more people to listen. The usual. Um, 
one step away from a third final in a row, Rona. This is, uh, I mean, whatever way you look at it from here, it's um, you're not the plucky underdog anymore. This is exceptional form. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's why the game against Saracens was a big, big game. I think it was a big step for the club. I think it was a big step for for what I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do. And um, it was very important. Um, and it's why, I suppose, you put such an emphasis on at the defensive side of the game as well. A lot of people, players, supporters, maybe coaches, I think they've put huge emphasis on attack. But like for uh, trophies and silverware, you need a a really performing defence and we were very good without the ball against Saracens and beyond average with the ball um, because we probably left six to eight try scoring opportunities out there which is sounds well what game is this guy watching but when you go through it again on Monday that is the reality of it but it was very pleasing in terms of how we I suppose see the game as a, as a collective and um you know I mean, Saracen scored 10 points. Um, they were awarded 10 points. They scored three points, but a, a try was given because of the decision by Andy Brace, who was excellent on the day, obviously, was that he saw the ball and touched the line, but when Joy Neville went to look for it, uh, she couldn't disagree with his on-field <laughs> decision. So it's about the language you use as well. So that was in... in um, for some people, it doesn't. It's not relevant. For for me, it's hugely relevant. Relevant because he wanted to keep them scoreless. A couple of tries from Carvalho as well in that game, Ronan. I think if I, if my uh, translation from French was accurate from your post match interview, I think you described him as the best num- number nine in the world after Dupont. Yeah, I think for consistently that that would be. I'm obviously biased because I see him day in day out, and I probably see his professionalism. I see how he prepares. I like that in players. Uh, but also, I think he's uh, he's an absolute hybrid between a back row and a nine. Uh, his basics and fundamentals in, in the attacking side of the game with the ball are, are, are really good, but what he does without the ball, and I think for people who enjoy probably um, big moments in game just early on, his capacity to chop tackle, uh, back rows coming at him, it's, it's a, a lot better than most back rows in the world. There was a moment in that match where Will Skelton is lifted at the line-out, all 145 kgs of him, and I'm, and I'm sitting there while a clip went a bit viral on, on, on Twitter at some point, but um, it's, it's, it's just always funny when you see someone being lifted at a line-out that you don't expect. Is that is that a pre-planned manoeuvre? Is that something, obviously, that's that's there's careful consideration given to before the match? Yeah, of course, yeah. You'd like to think that it's not the first time. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's live in a game. <laughs> the lads who want to be ready for that, yeah, to be fair. Yeah, because uh, but it's... Uh, you know, that's uh, Donnick Ryan and his work and uh, his thought process and that gives you a little insight into into how he operates he's always looking for an advantage or an edge and um, yeah I must admit I had a chuckle to myself up in the stand as well with the uh, getting the two JCBs ready to lift up Will Skelton into the into the sky so it's uh, yeah even as serious as the game was I, I kind of was wow that's does that look right? Um, <laughs> I'm not too sure, but if there's easy ball available and when Will catches it, um, there are very few in the world, if any, who are better with the ball in hand. So um, another string to his bow and keep the opposition guessing. 
I don't know. I think there was too much of a deal made about him being lifted. I don't know how much lifting was done. I think he <laughs> it wasn't like lifted it. too high. But it does keep, it keeps, like, obviously it keeps opposition guessing as well, Ronan, even in terms of the next game or the next games, whether it's domestically or in Europe. Like, you know, you had the wall, obviously, and I don't know, was that Donica's invention as well in the Ad Lastra game? Like, those little plays that sort of keep the next opponent guessing about what's coming. Yeah, and also probably give it a bit of excitement to the training week if you consider what the boys face every week. You know, you're trying not to have the same Monday, the same Tuesday. If you play on a Saturday, it's the Wednesday off for their day to probably look at non-rugby stuff. Then Thursday is nearly the same session. Fridays, you know, after a number of months, years, that just that just gets to you. You have to bring something different. And, uh, you know, it was probably why the barbarians week was very beneficial in season just having that capacity just to see how your approach can be different and um, that's why it was so great just having such a light week and huge and high in entertainment factor and high in um, guys being able to express themselves and um, you know I mean, plenty of other teams are looking at how you can um, score tries without kicking to the corner or taking a scrum. So the wall is one option. Leinster have a number of brilliant options uh, in the 22 with great variety. So, um, you know, I think just where you do a wall is you're kind of potentially trying to hide the ball for a little bit to give yourself um, a little bit of an advantage. But um, as you, what you don't see is the takes that happen. Um, not on match day so <laughs> it's the blippery it's a, a little bit of a car crash TV when you're going back over it but um, you know you gotta uh, enjoy those little moments and it can't be just all work 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 it makes it like a uh, high wire act though when you're because it's exactly what I would have assumed to be honest if you're, you're talking about the wall and the, the um, trying to pull something like that together because if it doesn't come off on the day like, it is a real high-wire act. You're a hero if it comes off, and if it doesn't, it's like, what are they trying to do here? It should have just kicked it to the corner. Yeah, yeah, that's... That'll always be there, Adrian, mm. though, you know, if... You know, as if as you know the expression, if my if my aunt had, she'd be my uncle, you know, so... Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what was that uh, one? <laughs> <laughs> can look, can look Liam Brady had a very uh, said it very famously after a game I think for Celtic at one point um, so you know you're just uh, it's what you believe in and if you think it's going to work then train it and then prepare it and then it could easily because uh, a lot of things are, are becoming full cycle or full circle in the game and a lot of things that were out of fashion are coming back into fashion and a lot of uh you mean there's no way as a coach you can say that I have uh, probably a an experienced rationale above my players on something like the wall. You know, it's really let's see does this work together, and then if you get a good vibe off it, let's bring it in. If you don't, all right, cut. Do you, uh, do you go through many things that you cut? Um. Oh yeah, not not. Um, potentially um, cut, cut, cut. But like mm. in terms of a menu, shall we say, in terms of plays, like I can remember even in the, in the language we used to use with the Crusaders, is basically you have like a pamphlet of a Chinese uh, restaurant. Literally, like you go from number one to 179 for uh, 
Chili, chili fried rice. Oh, great shout. <laughs> That's the wall, isn't it? <laughs> the wall. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's along that uh, the great uh, scale wall. where you could have, let's go for option 223 on the menu this week. Uh, but like you've banked so many plays over the years that, um, you know what I mean? The perfect example is the Joe Schmidt play, is it, where he pulled out of 2011 that Ireland scored off this year in, in off a kickoff reception goal line dropout against um, Finney Beelham back into um, yeah cut inside to Keenan was it or Cuba Keenan exactly yeah. you know so that's your perfect example of how big your menu can get do you stay it's, it was funny we, we had Quinny last week I think he was talking about the trip he took to to France and um, I know he met up with yourself running at one of the matches but um, he complimented how calm he said he was surprised I think as well by how calm you were on the sidelines um, is, is, is that something that, that you've had to pre-plan train yourself to be calm on the sideline put other thoughts out of your mind or is that just a natural thing like it's not a Pep Guardiola animated sideline show is what I'm trying to say uh, it could well be and it has been I just <laughs> I think that's we're not robotic and coaches aren't either you know so um, you have to obviously channel that and you have to work in that and uh, perception sometimes isn't reality and I obviously have a very poor disciplinary record attached to me but I think when you strip it back and understand the why behind that I think there's there's a pretty good defence there but uh, I can't say that because I'm the person involved but um, in terms of why and how I got a ban was probably because of trying to protect my players Uh, but um yeah, like it's it's um always a learning opportunity, the your behaviour on the sideline or your behaviour around people and the fact that even if you're the coach, like how much information can they take at half time and how much information can they take at the end of the game. So don't be getting uh yourself too wound up in the fact that you have to come up with a killer speech at at, at, at these moments. I think you've got to have the capacity to stay in the moment, stay present, and also what I value is how maybe the leaders of the play need uh, a redirection or confirmation of what they are doing. I think it's all the more remarkable that you stay so calm when you reveal that you've eight to ten flat whites per day, which is not easy to stay calm under those circumstances either. I think it's when you have that and antibodies that are hard to get at, you just keep going, isn't it? Just keep drinking it. Keep drinking it till <laughs> till there's a system overload. Obviously, every every month or two, and you know, you know what happens then. There's four or five days off it. You have to go detox. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because you've <laughs> you've spent too much time running to the loo. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're good for for uh, five past eight in the morning. We're definitely getting a bit too uh, too deep in the detail here. What? <laughs> what? Um, well, well, you tell you, you can thank Shane for that. <laughs> the, the Chinese send menu in, was... Send in your urgent emails and points for my my uh, best man speech in November 2024. <laughs> I couldn't honestly... I genuinely thought we were talking about like a few weeks down the track. Yeah, I actually couldn't believe when he dropped it. It's a new law in, in, in OTD. The you were able to share a bit of a, a few words and a, a smile and a chat with Owen Farrell on the pitch afterwards? Yeah, yeah. I... Um, um, because obviously people see the scoreline, you know, but 24-10, we get a yellow card, Brice Doulan goes to the bin, 
they have a period of pressure, like in my head, it wasn't beyond the, the realms of possibility that this game finished in 2024 and we have to face into uh, additional time uh, with a lot of our kind of leaders off the pitch thinking the job is done, you know. So, um, no, I think I was chatting to him about his dad, actually, and, uh, and that's why we started laughing, I think, because I forget, uh, obviously, that his dad is Andy Farrell because it's... Um, it's crazy when you think about it, obviously, because he had him, uh, had him so young, you know, because I'm kind of thinking, yeah, my mum and dad haven't been over uh, to, to La Rochelle. And I was saying, that, that's Andy, isn't it? And he was saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah <so. laughs> I just, uh, you know, it's, it's I, I, hard to decipher the, the two sporting grades because mm. all I can picture when I see Andy Farrell is in a Wigan jersey and when I see Owen Farrell is in a Saracens or an England jersey but I, I always forget the, the great story that it's father and son you know I kind of have a, a brother's mentality logged in which uh, it was just so natural and beautiful the way he kind of said well yeah my mum and dad were coming over and then I, I kind of had to I, I, I said what I was thinking out loud when I didn't want to say what I was thinking out loud so it was just trying to process it and and he started laughing at me so it was I think um, I think he I think he had him when he was like 16 or 17 so there's like a real sort of plenty of siblings that would be in the same sort of category um we're obviously at the business end and we'll talk to you again down the track maybe about your own game but how you cut the other one feels like there seems to be this it, it's bizarre right because like even paying attention to whatever narratives that have cropped up around the final four teams that are there and you kind of feel that any one of them will win it it feels like uh, we've every a lot of people have fallen back into the same narrative from last year that it's Leinster's to lose which feels bonkers given the quality of opposition that are there and particularly the quality of opposition they're going to meet in the semis yeah well that's people outside of any circle saying that you know I don't think any people within the Leinster camp of have have thoughts like that or you know I mean what's happening at the minute is probably all previous winners left in the semi finals so they know how to get over the finishing line. So what's set up for the semi finals is obviously uh La Rochelle playing in Bordeaux will be expected to beat Exeter and uh Leinster at home to Toulouse. Uh, people will expect uh Leinster to win that game but um, you know, let them think what they want, isn't it? That's mm. that's for for other people to to get excited about. I think four camps will have a plan, and four uh, camps appreciate where they are. And this is what it's all about. You, this is where it gets very exciting, and this is the as you say, the business end of the competition. But uh, genuinely, um, you know, I mean, we played Sunday at four o'clock. We play Bay on a Saturday night. We've had twenty one days to play prepare for our game. Um. So, like, genuinely, it was, uh, I think people probably stayed in the moment for 12 hours till Monday night, Tuesday, you turned the page, getting mm. ready for, for top 14, because, um, well, you've done a little bit of time over here, you you understand the fervour and the, the, the passion behind the top 14, so, um, you know, I mean, it's not like you're living in, in, in Ireland, where there's a priority to European Cup, obviously. Yeah, yeah, or you can have nearly a uh, quasi-off week, nearly in Leinster's case. How are you calling that game, despite the tightness of it? Because you know both of those teams very, uh, very well, Leinster and Toulouse. Um, it, it's impossible for me to call, obviously, because I probably, when you know teams 
very well. Uh, Toulouse will be have serious. There's two teams with the most history in the competition, obviously, and uh, Toulouse's last visit uh, to Viva will be top of their memory, and uh, that doesn't happen then. A scoreline like that won't happen again. Um, but the cohesion of Leinster again, you'd think it's a tight game against Leicester and then the following morning you look at it, what, there's nearly 30 or 40 points in the difference. Um, so, um, but Toulouse have um, players that can win on any day. That's the simple reality of it. You know, you look at their forwards and you look at Dupont, who's the best player in the world. They have Entomac and they have Ramos. Uh, they have a spine of a team that, that at the top level can, can beat any team. There's been Leinster a bit at home with the followers and their supporters and their game plan. They'll back themselves, but it's a it's a as you expect at uh, this level of competition. It's it's um, it'll be a brilliant game. You mentioned Leinster will be at home, Ronan. There's been a little bit made this week, and maybe it's because Leinster are so dominant um, over here that that Leinster have home advantage in a final, and the, the final shouldn't be decided until both teams are, are, are decided essentially and Brian Murr wrote a piece this week which kind of hinted at that and said it should be a neutral venue obviously the argument then is that you know you have to sell tickets out quite far in advance there's security that has to be arranged as well where do you where do you stand on all this that the idea that that a final should be neutral um well this decision was made at the very before a ball was kicked you know so once you enter you know where the final is getting to the final only two teams get there, so it's very easy people for throw stones from a distance. Um, but with the level of, I suppose, interest in this uh, competition and the growing, I suppose, uh, interest in the game with the Rugby World Cup uh, around the corner, um, there was an opportunity potentially to grow the game. You know, you could play a final maybe in the new Camp, play it in the San Siro, you could play it in uh, anywhere, probably in Europe. Uh, but, um, I mean, Leinster had to get, have to get to, to a final for it to be in the Aviva. So, yeah, they play a lot of games there and it's a second home for them. But, like every other team, uh, knew that at the start of the competition, so there's no point whining now, you know. Um, this is what it is and um, I mean, we're only at semi-final stages, so mm. um, I think it's uh, very people. You know, what I mean, probably don't underestimate or underestimate how good Toulouse are. Yeah, Leinster are in Dublin, and they were a lot uh, more organised for them the last time they played. But sport um, can change quickly, and depends on. on on the moment, you know, you've seen enough uh, examples of that throughout the years that uh, you have no idea who's going to be in the final yet. Yeah, it could become a very moot conversation in 12 days' time. We'll see how it pans out over the next few weeks. We, uh, we'll come back to you again, Ronan, maybe in about 12 months' time to ask if you have any more tips for uh, for Shane on the, uh, <laughs> on the best Give it, Have a think there, Ronan, for, for about <laughs> yeah, a year, right. a year and a half, maybe. And the calendar's a little less busy. <laughs> Thanks a million. Yeah. See you guys. Bye-bye. Ronan Vigar on the line there uh, from La Rochelle. Um, I th- honestly, I'm with him. Like, <laughs> I thought we were chatting about something that was on the horizon. <laughs> Still, it's it's my first time doing it, Adrian. You know, you're you're under pressure. Um, first time for any- anything is 
nerve-wracking. That is, no, I'll give you that. It's just that it's very, very far away. Um, I did a, this is your life team, the best man gig, says Shifty Led, more than Shifty. Uh, yeah, I was about to get into that and then I just did a little bit of a forward read there. And Have you ever done some one? Of these are quite edgy. I've done three of them. Oh, you've done three of them? Yeah. From talking to the right, right man here. Well, come back to me in 12 months. Did so. you just use the same speech and rehash it? No, and no, I did edits. one of them when I was much younger and... Um, it, it was one of the. It was a scaring experience. Ed, I'll talk balloon to you about job. It, um, I'll talk to you about it. Absolutely. I'll talk to you about what not to do. Right. That's all I need. No doubt. No doubt about that. As uh, the great man would say. Um, right. We've loads still to come on the uh, show. We're going to be talking to Ken Doherty in a little bit. Uh, we're going to have Anna Capeless, obviously looking ahead to the weekends. Um, Six Nations and Naradine Chowdhury is going to join us as well after uh, the release of his new book. We're back after these. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. You're racing Andorra, not bad. Yeah, not bad, not bad. I still miss the, I still miss the old, you know, the green grass. <laughs> um, I, I love it in Andorra. The drivers, I think, thirty percent of the MotoGP field live in in, uh, in Andorra, so it's a it's a high octane country. Um, I've got the best of both worlds. I'm learning to ski at the moment. Uh, I, How's that going? Uh, it's tricky. The paddies <laughs> and, and snow wouldn't be the May West, I'd say. But, um, I'm learning, uh, you know, and, and then in the summertime you've got beautiful, you know, uh, golden sunshine nearly all summer long and warm temperatures is perfect for me for training. So I, I love it. Come back here as often as I can, uh, but I have to say it, it does feel like home to me. And just out of interest, do you get that same buzz of taking to the slopes in Andorra as you do, say, being out there in rallycross car, or are you still very much, once you're in the car, nothing can come close to that? <laughs> To be honest with you, the speed I'm going on the slopes now, I have the two skis welded like this and I'm doing about two miles an hour going down, so maybe ask me again, in, I was going to say six months, maybe six years time I might be after improving a small bit, uh, but I, I enjoy it and it's a great way of getting fit as well and uh, we can do ski mo as well, which is where you put the put the rubber ends onto the skis and you can actually climb up as well, so I use it for, for training, so uh, not quite the same with joining the Russia, uh, Russia's rallying, but uh, maybe, maybe the future. Desperately sad stuff. It was owned in conversation with Craig Breen from a couple of years ago. He had uh, joined us in OTBM over the years to talk about where he was at in his career and um, desperately sad news with his passing. And we wanted to mark it. And to do that, I'm delighted to say we're joined on the line in sad circumstances by Art McCarrick, who's the sporting manager at Motorsport Ireland. Art, thanks a lot for taking the call this morning. Just when you watch back the video, it uh, just hammers home what a tragic event that occurred yesterday. Uh, it it really does, and it's hard hard to believe we're we're talking about Craig Breen in the uh, in the past tense. Um, you know, he was our most successful, most talented, most decorated driver, um, and uh, you know the the whole motorsport community is is really struggling to <clears throat> to come to terms with the news we got yesterday. And a guy that, um, like, I, you know, I think there's an acceptance, there is an acceptance from people who compete in a sport like that about the dangers that are involved, but just the event itself is uh, equally so unthinkable. It, it, it really is. And, you know, look at the, the Croatian authorities and Hyundai will have to do the necessary investigations there. And, and really at the moment, you know, um, our our thoughts and concerns are with, are with Greg's immediate family and, and his co-driver James Fulton, um, who thankfully um, got out of yesterday's accident unscathed, and um, just the sheer uh, outpouring of of grief um, among the Irish motorsport community and indeed the the wider sporting community um, has really been something to um, to behold. He was he was one of those. Uh, 
motorsport figures because of his, his profile. He kind of um, transcended motorsport a little bit. Uh, people who didn't know anything about motorsport knew who he was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a tough day. Will you talk to us a little bit, Art, if you can, about who he was as well? I'm sure you would have had plenty of dealings with him over the years. The little bits that we would have chatted to him about, his crazy passion for motorsport across the board, really lifted off the page. But will you talk to us a little bit about that and about who Craig Breen was as a person? Yeah. Um, so he, uh, his father was a, a former national rally champion. So Craig grew up around the uh, the sport and he started go-karting from the age of eight um and after two years he was the, the national junior champion. Um and in two thousand and eight he decided he would leave the karting, which he was very talented with, and once he was old enough to get his, his road traffic license he, he went rallying and his tra- trajectory really from two thousand and eight was, was nothing short of spectacular. His first full year rallying in two thousand and nine he was the Irish junior champion. Irish and UK Fiesta Sporting Champion, Billy Coleman Award winner, the, the youngest person ever to win that. The following year, he won the Pirelli Star Driver Global Shootout. 2011, he won the Academy section of the World Rally Championship that got a half a million euro prize at the time. Uh, 2012, he won the second tier of the World Rally Championship. And since 2013, effectively, he had been a full factory driver um, with Peugeot first, then with Citroën, then with Hyundai, then with Ford and, and tragically uh, back to Hyundai where, where it's all finished up um, and his achievements we'll talk about the, the man in, in a second he won five European Rally Championship events um, had nine World Rally Championship podium finishes including six second place finishes um, no Irish driver has ever got close to that um, and uh, I'm not sure they, they they ever will. He was very close to getting on the, the top step of the podium. Indeed, he was, he was strongly fancied in, in Croatia. He had a, a very good result in Sweden on, on his first round of the championship this year mm. with the new co-driver. Um, but he loved um, motorsport um, and uh, loved, <coughs> loved helping um, others kind of try and get the the opportunities that, that he got. Um, in fact, only this year, he sponsored the um, the Junior 1000 uh, Rally Championship, which takes place in, in the forests um, for drivers aged 14 to 18. And he put up um, 10,000 euros sponsorship money. Um, and as recently as three days ago, Tuesday, he attended um, a tuition day for those drivers, 18 young drivers. Uh, in Galway, and um, they didn't—they didn't even know he was going to come. And uh, wow, yeah, it was just he, uh, unbelievable. He was clearly very, very humble, Art, and, and and such a role model to those young drivers. I even saw some uh, Instagram posts yesterday from the likes of Alex Dunn and and, and even James Rowe, who's over in Indy. Um, who clearly looked up to him. A lot of the Irish young drivers, in fact, all of the Irish young drivers did. Um, and, and even that interview with Owen that we played beforehand, like if you watch the full thing back on YouTube, you'll see he talks about his demons as well and some of the dark days over the last you know number of years and, and, and dealing with those and speaking to family and, and professional help as well. Um, so so it, he was clearly quite comfortable in that role model role and knew that maybe speaking out about the likes of that was, was crucially important as well. Yeah, um, you know, so many, and, and you probably speak to them a lot, um, 
some of these <clears throat> top sports people there. <clears throat> they can kind of be a bit robotic in their answers sometimes, or uh, a little bit guarded. Um, that certainly wasn't uh, that certainly wasn't Craig. Um, he uh, was always uh, very honest, but possibly sometimes um, uh, too honest. But it, it was always um, he, he couldn't hide who he was, and um, he was, you know, as, as we said yesterday in our statement, he was a he was a world class driver, but he was a, a world class person as well. Mm. Clearly, the the um, and if anyone has seen Craig's Twitter bio, you'll have seen reference to to Jaffa and. Gareth Roberts is a, is a Welsh co-driver known by uh, the name Jaffa. And I think it was the 2012 that, that um, Gareth Roberts was tragically killed in, a, in an eerily similar crash um, uh, to, to, to yesterday's. And that, that was clearly something that, that had affected Craig quite, quite deeply, Art, as well. It was, and he spoke uh, very openly about that. I think it was, that accident was, was June um, 2012. But I suppose if you wanted... Um, uh, a, a measure of the man. Um, the first event Craig did after that accident was a, a small, a small rally in Wales, and um, the the person who sat in as the co-driver was um, Gareth Roberts' brother, and um, it was um, it really was um, just a, a measure of the man that um, you know we all. We all know the risks in the sport, but uh, it doesn't make it any easier on, on days like this. But the, the fact that, um, you know, the, um, Gareth Roberts' brother um, sat in with Craig Burr's first event back, um, that speaks volumes about uh, who he was and um, how he was respected. That speaks volumes, I think, doesn't it? Yeah, world-class, as you said, Art, uh, world-class driver and world-class individual as well. And I was struck, Absolutely. you mentioned uh, Rally Sweden earlier, I was struck by mm. his words now that the clip was uh, doing the rounds yesterday um, where he had said it's, a, it's an incredibly tough sport to get a seat in and he was very open again about his ups and downs in relation to that and he was obviously back and felt back and uh, had said, don't let anyone put you down, only you know your true potential. And... Um, mm. There, yeah. there are words that that ring heavy today. Uh, absolutely, you know, there's there's less seats um, at the top of the World Rally Championship than there is in, in Formula One. You know, there's only three teams, and um, not all of them run three cars. Um, Craig had done the deal with Hyundai this year to to share a third car with um, uh, Danny Sardo, and the hope was that that would turn into another full time seat um, next year. And um, he worked every second of every day to, to get back to the top. In fact, <clears throat> um, when he, late 2018, his, his contract with Citroën had finished. He didn't have a, a factory drive in himself and his co-driver at the time, Paul Nagel, um, pulled together um, sponsorship to do the, the Irish Tarmac Championship at home, which was always a dream <clears throat> of Greg's to, to do, but um, he realised that he only had a a finite amount of time at the top level of the sport, so it was something he never really chased. But um, he annihilated um, the opposition here at home in 2019, and, and halfway through that season, um, Hyundai came knocking, and um, that was the the restart of of his career at the at the top level. And um, he, um, like I say, he was incredibly open about um, the difficulties and and the pressures of being. Um, uh, not only a professional top flight driver, but the, the pressures have been a, a top flight sports person. 
um, you know, he divided his time between the continent and Ireland and would come back as much as, as much as he could. Um, and even th- this year, you know, he competed, competed in two events in Ireland in 2023, the, the West Cork rally, not that long ago, St. Patrick's weekend and a, a very small navigation trial event in, uh, County Gavin, uh, which would be the home club of, um, James Fulton, his, his co-driver, um, just to try and, you know, build that relationship up with, with James as a, as a new co-driver for this year. And, um, he, um, he did so much outside of the sport too. You know, he was an ambassador for the, the road safety authority in conjunction with our, with ourselves for you know, promoting to keep the race in its place message. And, um, you know, I was, I was just listening earlier on this morning, those, um, kids talking about, um, Playing GAA in front of Joe Biden and, and the buzz it gave them, I just couldn't stop thinking of of uh, Tuesday had just gone, where you know he wrapped up to the the tuition day, where um, his young drivers had an idea he was going to turn up, and um, it was uh, right up until the the, the very end. He uh, the greatest, uh, one of the greatest advocates for <clears throat> for Irish motorsport you'd ever meet. I think that's so important what you said there, Art. But the fact that he never he never forgot his roots. I know he was a Waterford man, and, and you listed off his achievements there earlier. And, and, and as as you say, it'll be very difficult for any Irish driver ever to to uh, match them, never mind surpass them. But the fact that he came home, as you said, to, to you know Irish tarmac championships, whether it be in, in Killarney or Donegal or wherever, or Cavan, as you say as well, that also speaks volumes because he didn't have to come home for those events. No, but um, he wanted to, and. Um he never um he never forgot what made him love the sport and that was you know the Irish uh, events here and um he knew that uh that that's what made him made him happiest i suppose when he was competing here it was stress free competing i suppose at the at the level he's at but um, he made a conscious effort in, in recent years especially to to come back here and and compete or even even spectate you know, you, you you could see his head sticking out of a hedge at, at any corner of the country. Um, he uh, he got back when a very good, and um, the fact then in later years he started giving back and, and mentoring young drivers um, was just a, a whole a whole different um, element because he was lucky enough he found himself in in the position to do that, and um, yeah, he didn't have to. No one asked him to. Um, it was just something uh, he uh, wanted to do, and um, it he leaves behind um, an amazing legacy, albeit uh, tragically cut short. Yeah, well, our thoughts are with the Motorsport Ireland community today, Art, and with his family and his friends, of course, as well. It's mm-hmm. often used, and we didn't want to let it pass without uh, reflecting on who who he was. So we, I know it was tough uh, for you to do that over the last 10 or 15 minutes, but we appreciate it. Thanks a million. No, absolutely. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks a lot, Art McCarrick there at uh, Motorsport Ireland. We back after these. De Laurentiis is one of the toughest negotiators in Italy. You know, I wouldn't want to do a deal with De Laurentiis, <laughs> any kind of deal, because I think I might be in the losing side. But you're absolutely right. Napoli are not in the position that they need to sell to fund their success. They are financially viable in the summer by selling or letting go those players that we mentioned before, they managed to reduce their wage total. So, so they really 
don't have to make a lot of money. They will receive money anyway mm. by winning the Scudetto, by qualifying for the quarterfinal of the Champions League, and maybe even more. So I think they could look at the future in a way that actually they could strengthen the team. They've extended the contract of Cravacellia for another three years. Osimen is still tied to a contract until 2025. So they don't need to sell it this summer. Maybe next summer, if unless they, they manage to extend the deal, but the price will be astronomical. And they also, um, you know, managed to get players relatively on the cheap, you know. Zambuangis, for example, wasn't, wasn't doing it at Fulham. He got relegated and they got it relatively relatively cheap. Uh, same with the Lobotka, whose value has increased. Uh, Kim values has increased as well. But I think they will keep it at least for another season uh, for them to have the chance to defend the Scudetto properly and uh, well let's see how it goes in the Champions League but obviously uh, they will be seeded this time in this group of the Champions League as Italian champions so uh, they will have an early draw easy draw etc and all the ramification but Napoli they don't look like they need to there are other teams in Italy that got other financial issues and is always one in one out but uh, not for Napoli Half past eight, still loads to come. Anna Cape is going to join us to talk about Six Nations shortly, and we'll be joined a little bit later on uh, by Nardine uh, Chowdhury to talk about his new book, Inshallah United. And um, United is very much the... Uh, Ken Doherty will be with us in a couple of moments, by the way. And uh, United very much the topic and the tone across the back pages this morning. Mad United, uh, says the back page of The Sun. And uh, you've got Harry Maguire... A hapless looking Harry Maguire um, after nodding the ball into the back of his own net last night, unbeknownst to himself. It was, Poor uh, Harry. As we said at the top of the show, really, um, it could only happen to him. Um, the um, lines person and uh, Andy Robertson have made up. Uh, and your man has been cleared. No wrongdoing. He was trying to extricate his arm from the other lads, especially one. The big baby. Yeah, big baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sabotage. Another good headline on the uh, back page of the Star this morning. In relation to Man United, Byron Keane uh, to swoop for Kane ahead of United bid. An interesting line from Miguel Delaney there. And uh, Cullen Key's also writing that the referees committee have hit back over Fergal Horgan, Horgan's um, appointments claim from earlier in the week. And plenty more as well across the back pages this morning. Yeah, 8.32am though on this Friday morning's OTBM. And uh, tomorrow is the start of, as I said, the greatest thing in sport the World Snooker Championship gets underway at the Crucible 17 days of brilliance looking forward to heading over to it delighted to be joined by the 1997 World Snooker Champion Ken Darney. morning Ken how are things? Morning Shane how it's are like, you? It's like Christmas Eve Ken <laughs> You love it you love it <laughs> I'm, uh, no, I'm looking forward to heading over it's going to be, it's going to be exciting and, and, and you, you, I'm trying to pick out winning qualities and winning qualities of players can you last the pace can you last the 17 days are you in form uh, but I mean if you, look yeah. at, if you look at your win in 97 Ken you actually don't have to be informed to win the World Championship well this, this is it yeah I mean it's because it's over the best of 19 and then 25 of course until the semi-final <clears throat> excuse me uh, you can find your form there I think it's an interesting point because I think a lot of players are coming into the World Championship particularly the defending champion Ronnie O'Sullivan without any form you know you've got him you've got Trump and you've got Robertson in there. Uh, no real form at all. So they'll be helping to find their form uh, at the World Championship, which is quite unusual. 
So coming into tomorrow and, and Ronnie O'Sullivan, as you said, defending champion, so he'll be he'll be in action yeah. at ten a.m. tomorrow in the opening session with uh, Pang Zhu, his uh, his first opponent, could potentially face Ding Junhui in the second round. So we're looking forward to that one. But yeah. Ronnie, Ronnie, so after that World Championship win last year, Ken, he wins the Hong Kong Masters, the champion of champions, beats Joe Trump in fact easily uh, in that final. Yeah. But but regardless of as you say form or lack of it, Ronnie is is still. You'd imagine the man to beat, and this could be this could be history. He's level with Stephen Hendry and looking to overtake him. Yeah, yeah, he's on seven with Stephen Hendry. Achieved that last year, beat Trump in the final. He's looking to make it eight, which is unprecedented. So that would be a new record, uh, which adds a little bit of pressure as well. But I think he enjoys that. I think he likes the the thrill of it, and uh, he is the man to beat. There's no doubt about it. I mean, all the rest of the other guys are, will be, you know, watching him and see how he's performing. Uh, so difficult to play at the World Championship because he, he sort of feels a, a home there. You know, previous years, he didn't, he was complaining about the sort of longevity of the tournament over 17 days, you mentioned. And sometimes he, he gets a bit bored or, you know, impatient uh, and then sort of, uh, you know, throws his toys out of pram in a few matches over the years. But I think over the last couple of years, he sort of set his goal on, you know, creating that legacy and wanting to be the best uh, without doubt. And that's what he's after. He's after number eight, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. And I, I hope he does it because I think his talent deserves it, you know. Sometimes, can you have these conversations like we had uh, Johnny Sexton in the Six Nations uh, overtaking Ronan yeah. Gar as the points leader and Owen Farrell is probably going to do it at some point or another. So you have these conversations about like who's the GOAT in that context. And even though he's level with Hendry at the minute, it does feel like there isn't really a conversation to be had that everybody accepts that it is. Yeah, true of, enough. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's won he's won seven UKs. He's won seven Masters, which is better than Stephen Hendry. Stephen was six, I think, and five respectively, and uh, or six Masters and five UKs. So um, yeah, without a doubt, I mean, he's the most talented player that we've ever played. You know, left-handed, right-handed. The the, the amount of breaks. I mean, almost twelve hundred. I think centuries. Hendry was on seven, seven, seven. I think. Um, so he he has all he's broken all the records and. Um, you know, he's the most, as I said, the most naturally gifted player that the game's ever seen. So I think uh, everybody regards him as the GOAT. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but I think he'd still like to get that eight just to say, look, I've got more than Stephen Hendry now at the World Championship. He's level with him, as I said. Steve Davis had six. Uh, and I think, he, you know, it's a born and a desire for him to win that number eight. And it could be this year. We talk often on the show, Ken, about this strange intangible in sport, momentum, and it feels like mm. in, in years where Ronnie gets past the first or second round, like I remember him exiting, yeah. I think, at the first round to James Cahill, Ali Carter, I think, was in the second mm. round not too long ago as well. Yeah. So it, do you almost mm. feel like when he gets beyond those first round, a couple of rounds, that's when you realise, OK, Ronnie, Ronnie's head is really in this? Absolutely. I think the first couple of rounds, I think he's most vulnerable. Um I don't think you'll have too much problem with with the with the qualifier Pang Zhongzhou, even though he's he's up and coming, uh, young Chinese lad from from Sheffield here, um, might might cause him just because of the, the sort of pace that he plays there. But I don't, I, I think his his danger could be in the second round. I'm looking at the draw here, Ding Zhongwei or Hussein Bafei in the second round. That could be a danger, but that would be over 25. I think when he gets by there, he'll possibly play. Mark Williams in the quarterfinals, which would be a, a fantastic match. And then the possibility of um, Judd Trump or Sean Murphy, maybe, or Jack Lazowski in the semifinals, which again would be, you know, um, a, a water in prospect, you know, for Trump. Trump and him played in the final last year. Uh, Murphy is playing really, really well. Just won the tour championships 
only a few weeks ago, playing superb, back to his best. So he could pose a big problem for him as well. Yeah, and I guess from an Irish perspective, and we'll touch on Mark Allen in a second, but I guess we're claiming yeah. Sean Murphy as well, given that he's living in, <laughs> yeah, living yeah. in Dublin now. He's got he's an Irish family. Now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sort of we'll take him. We'll take less, him. Uh, uh, more or less Irish man now, uh, you know, living in Dublin and, and uh, loving it, travelling back and forth. And yeah, he's very proud of his Irish roots, actually, you know, he, he, even though he was born in England, but he is very proud and he, he loves living in, in Ireland. And uh, yeah, it's good to see him back playing well. I mean, he's won a couple of tournaments now this year. It's great to see him playing. Um, playing back to his best, like you know, so he he would be a big danger, I think, as well. I was over in Wolverhampton to watch uh, you know bit, bits of the Players Championship and and mm. the, the form he was in at that, and as you mentioned, the Tour Championship as well. Ken, like he's scoring better than yeah. anyone at the moment. He doesn't seem to feel pressure whatsoever. Got to the final in twenty twenty one. There's just something mm. different about Sean Murphy. He's probably the informed player in the world right now. Would you say? I'd say so. Yeah, and uh, he must be coming into this World Championship with a lot of confidence. You know the way he played in the players um, and indeed in the Tour Championship particularly. Um, you know, he, it was a fantastic uh, run and the, just, the, just the manner in which he, he won it as well, you know, even when the pressure came on from Wilson. You know, he just uh, went up another couple of gears. So his, his long ball game is back, which was sort of, by his own admission, wasn't great over the last couple of years. But And he's scoring a lot heavier now as well. So, uh, yeah, and he, he plays the game flamboyantly, you know, very fluent. Quick around the table, great break builder, and one of the best cues that we have in the game as well. So, um, yeah, it's good to see these players playing well. But I mean, when you look down the list, I mean himself, Mark Allen that you mentioned, uh, who's had a fantastic season as well. Uh, Selby, he, he could be a danger. He's down in the bottom half of the draw. Uh, you know, he's a four-time winner. But the rest of them, uh, you know, the Trumps and as I said, the Robertson, uh, John Higgins, and Mark Williams, and O'Sullivan. Uh, haven't really performed over this last like twelve months. So they, uh, they, you know, they have the experience of being there and winning the trophy, but uh, you know they'll have to find their form at the World Championship. So it's going to be interesting from that perspective. You mentioned Mark Allen, someone who's never won the mm-hmm. World Championship, but if you look at his uh, his campaign yeah. this year, he's won the Northern Ireland Open, the UK Championship, the World yeah. Grand Prix. It's tailed off a little bit, possibly since a few of those victories, but. He's clearly a man, when you listen to interviews, Ken, recently, that is, has so much confidence. He's clearly yeah. vi- visibly lost a hell of a lot of weight, and I think he uh, mm-hmm. gives Ronnie O'Sullivan a lot of credit for helping him out in, in, that, in that regard as well. But, he, but he's yeah. in a good place, Mark Allen. Yeah, he is, yeah. I mean, he's lost uh, nearly six now uh, since last summer, which is incredible. And, and um, that will definitely help him at the World Championship, you know, not carrying that weight, because... Not only is the World Championship over 70, it's a marathon. and It's a marathon of the mind as well and the body, you know, because the, the pressure does take it out of you physically. And the fact that he's, you know, he's fitter, he's a lot lighter, he can reach, you know, more shots even on the table. But I think you're not carrying that weight over the 17 days. Has to, has to help him. And yes, he hasn't got his hands on the World Championship yet, but um, I think he has a really good chance this year. He's playing superbly well, you know, winner, winner of three tournaments. Um, the most consistent performer over the 12 months as well since since we came back and uh, I think he, he's going to be a big danger man in, in the bottom half of the draw and you look at Mark Allen's route I'm just looking at the draw here so he's got Fang Zheng Yi in the first round yeah. a possible clash against Bingham or Gilbert in the second round and then you'd imagine Neil Robertson or Ali Carter are waiting in a quarterfinal so not an easy half of the draw but but it's still there are matches and, and opponents that, that Allen would fancy himself in yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I mean, some of the the young qualifiers, you know, the Chinese lads. We, I think we've got a 
five of them there. Wu Yi's and um, Beng Shengji that you mentioned as well. Um, wonderful players, you know, and Si Jia Hui as well. I hope I got those. I hope I got those pronunciations correct. <laughs> uh, but yeah, wonderful players, young Chinese talent. Uh, coming through, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not a bad draw for Mac Allen to be honest, you know. And the uh, the big match would probably be Bingham or Gilbert could pose a little problem to him. But the quarterfinal, yeah, Ali Carter or Robertson, and Ali Carter is probably coming into the World Championship with a lot more form than he has done uh, over the previous uh, seasons. So that might be, you know, that match against Robertson should the two of them get through. That should be a right cracking match as well, but over the best of twenty five. You look at Selby, and you mentioned him, uh, Ken. Um, like as you say, same section of the draw as Higgins and Wilson. Mm. Um, Selby, he, he won the English Open before Christmas. Uh, maybe the form hasn't been as as good, but but in that tournament, he beat the likes of Higgins and Ali Carter and Pang Zhongzhu, who <laughs> Ronnie plays in the first round. Yeah. Um, so Selby, you can never rule out this at this tournament particularly. No, no, and and for me, actually, he's going to be my my pick. You know, this year, there's something about Selby this year. Uh, as you said, he, he wants, he's won two ranking tournaments, one just a, a couple of weeks ago in, in Leicester. And uh, at the Tour Championship, he lost to Corin Wilson. But uh, he has shown a lot more form. Um, you know, he's had his mental health issues away from, the, away from the table and some family problems. His wife hasn't been too well. He's had that to deal with. But he's okay now. And um, he looks a lot happier. Uh, and particularly around the table, he seems to have got his confidence back. Uh, he's scoring is back to his best and I think he could be the dark horse of the tournament he's going to be my pick and my uh, sort of uh, he's the only one I think and he's the one that even if he gets to the final and O'Sullivan gets to the final it's one one player on the whole circuit that O'Sullivan hates playing is Selby he's called him the torturer over the years you know and he doesn't like playing they've had some great matches uh, Selby has beaten him from 10-4 down I think at the World Championship Finals uh, one year and uh, and then of course uh, on his way to winning his seventh, um, I think I saw our sixth. O'Sullivan uh, beat Selby in an epic semi-final, seventeen sixteen, coming from sixteen fourteen down. Mm. So they've had some tremendous matches at the World Championship, but he is the one player that I think Ronnie would sort of wouldn't like playing in the final. He's the only man that Ronnie, of course, has lost to in the final at the World Championships as well. Uh, so that backs yeah. that up. Um, Neil, Neil Robertson is a man who Selby could meet potentially in a, in a semi-final uh, this year, Ken, if, yeah. if, if they both went the, the distance. But um, when you think back to Robertson's World Championship win, that's 2010, that's 13 years ago. You know, If he yeah. ends up ultimately retiring with just one world title to his name, that would be hugely surprising for, for a player of his talent. Um, yeah. He probably adds a lot of pressure on himself heading into the Crucible because he only has yeah. the one world title, as you say. Yeah, well, I would knock just one word. For no, they're, 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 actually, they're absolutely fine. <laughs> you, got, you got to a couple more finals as well, Ken, to be fair. <laughs> wow, shade drawn, Ken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, uh, I think you're right, you know, for someone as talented as him, and he's one of the best players that's ever played the game, there's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, he's just wonderful cueist uh, and, and score, you know, the centuries. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, 13 years, it's, it's a long time. You know, when he won that championship, in 2010, for sure. I mean, I thought he was going to go on and win, you know, three or four. It hasn't happened. He doesn't like playing at the Crucible, funny enough. You know, he thinks he's a little bit sort of cramped in there. He's always sort of giving out. He's quite a tall lad. And it, 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 it can be a little bit tight around when the when the screen is down or, or you know, when you're playing on uh, next to the boarding mm. around the table. But um, 
yeah, he doesn't like playing there. You know, he's won it once and he, he hasn't really performed as uh, the way he did, and that's a long time ago. So yeah, he's got to overcome those sort of obstacles. Obstacles, and uh, but yeah, I, I expected him to win a few, but it just hasn't happened for him. It'd be interesting to see what sort of uh, you know form he's going to find here at the World Championship. If he does find form, well then that would be fantastic for the tournament. There's no doubt about that, and a semi-final against the possibility of of. Um, of Mark Selby, if he comes through, of course, his tough match, because I think himself and Allen in the quarterfinal, uh, that would be a real test for I think uh, another lefty that a lot of people love watching is uh, is uh, the Welshman Mark Williams, and uh, mm. he definitely is a, is a fan favourite, and you look at the draw he's got as well, he's got uh, Jimmy Robertson in the opening round, and then a possible second yeah. round tie against Luca Brussel or Ricky Walden, there could be a quarterfinal there for, um, yeah. I guess, Ronnie O'Sullivan think, as well. Like, I think you're right. I think he'll come. I think Williams, uh, you know, he's a great outsider. I think you might get him at about 40 to 1 or something like that. But mm. himself, Williams and Higgins, uh, both around uh, the same. And both sort of, you know, very experienced players. You know, Higgins has won it four times. Williams is three times. Um, and both very, very dangerous. Um, and they, they could be good outsiders. But yeah, I think Williams will come through that. He should face... Things when we Hussein Buffay or Ronnie O'Sullivan in, in the in the quarterfinals, presuming it will be Ronnie and, and uh, yeah, I think he, he'll put it up to Ronnie. There's no doubt about that. I was looking at last year's opening draw there last night, Ken, and noticed. I think it was three of the sixteen ties went the way of the qualifier, and um, so it doesn't happen too often. But there's always those few shocks you'd imagine in the opening round. Can you see any? Yeah. We haven't mentioned Judd Trump. He's against Anthony McGill, a man who loves, who just yeah. loves the crucible. Like there, there could be potential qualifier shocks in the in the opening round. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm looking at that. Good Trump, that's a horrible draw for Judd Trump. Anthony McGill in the first round, he, he got to the semi-finals uh, one year, lost 17-16 to Corin Wilson in the semi. It's one of the most dramatic semi-finals we've ever seen. Yeah, Trump um, hasn't played well since the Masters, really. Uh, and, and that was back in January. So uh, that's really a, a, a potential banana skin for him in the first round. He won't like playing uh, McGill. McGill will love it. And... Uh, yeah, that could be a possible uh, win for McGill there. And Jack Lazowski, uh, you know, one player that I love watching. I mean, he's so talented, but he's never got his hands on a trophy. Uh, a ranking time, yeah, he's been beaten in six finals. He's a, a wonderful talent, and uh, I'd love to see him play well. But he's playing uh, up on Sangham in the first round from Thailand, and that's another potential banana skin. Absolutely. Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on it. You'll be busy with the media over the next uh, few weeks, Ken, no doubt. Yeah, looking forward to it. All, all the boys will be uh, arriving uh, today and uh, starts again, as you said. Ronnie O'Sullivan starts out his campaign tomorrow at 10 a.m. But yeah, really, really uh, looking forward to it. It's so exciting. I mean, you know what it's like at Sheffield over the 17 days. People coming from all over the world to watch the World Championships. Over, I think, over 45,000, you know, tickets over the 17 days. Sold, completely sold out from last year. And uh, it's just, it's just exciting. It's just such a, a wonderful buzz in the city, and uh, it's fantastic. I just love it, you know. We've got a, we've got a message in here from someone who wants to thank you as well. Uh, Greg London says, "Top man Ken passed my college exams in '97, following the worlds, turned down the volume, <laughs> and kept me inside for the whole tournament." So, uh, oh right, oh, that's nice. At least he passed it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all these years later, still remembers. <laughs> Ken, great, great stuff as always. Listen, enjoy the enjoy the cruise, but we'll, we'll no doubt catch up uh, during the tournament at some point oh, as well. I'll see you it's over here, Shane. Yeah, okay, enjoy. We'll, we'll grab a pint. Cheers, Ken. Good man. Cheers, cheers, guys. Ken Doherty, always uh, absolute legend. Um, so, how much of this? Because it's, it's uh, there's a lot of it. Yeah, seventeen days. Long, 
but it's brilliant it's one of those sports that even people who aren't snooker fans necessarily for the it's like the darts for, for the 17 days they tune in or mm. doze off in front of the TV when the snooker's on mm. you can just it's it's not a viewing intense <laughs> it's not a viewing really intense sport you're really selling it no but like and then you wake up when, when the claps start happening and it's like oh I better watch you the rest of this four hours later and the game is like barely moved on it's, it's ASMR it's, that's what I've described right. it as before autosensory meridian response you okay. get the, the, the sound of the, the balls going into the pocket and, mm. and all the rest it's um it's, it's a wonderful sport. When are you heading over? Heading over uh, this day week. So I'll get I'll get the Saturday, Sunday, Monday and Tuesday in. Oh, okay, okay. So what sort of that, what stages is that at? It'll be kind of the full second round and hopefully the first day or two of the quarterfinals. Are you going back later on in the tournament or no? I was thinking about it, I don't know. It's unusual. I know, you see, sometimes it's... I wanted, I've gone twice before and I've never seen Ronnie yet playing there because the ah, two, okay. two times I've gone were the two times I mentioned he was knocked out in the first round and ah, the second okay. round so I was like right ah, second yeah, round let's like, let's sneak that in this time yeah, okay. so um, maybe I'll go back for a are second you working round. or are you just over I'm going to enjoy it Saturday and Sunday and work Monday Tuesday All right. and get a few so interviews and that sort of bit getting paid to go over and sort of going over to half <laughs> enjoy yourself ah, it's well, come from here Shane it's fantastic isn't it yeah. Um, right do keep the comments coming into us as well uh, and a reminder by the way if you want uh, more great GA chat the football pod are hitting the road again they're off to Killarney this time it'll be off the ball's first big show of the summer all with thanks to AIB Tommy, Paddy, James are going to be bringing the football pod to the Great Southern Hotel it's a live episode a live recording and a special guest as well on the night to be announced it'll be Thursday uh, the 4th of May so it's not that far away uh, you can join us for a brilliant night of football crack and chat plenty of focus on the Ireland Champions carry course as well and the contenders who are coming for their crown and an exclusive off-air event tickets are limited and uh, don't delay so you can go to offtheball.com forward slash events for that and I know that we're going very quickly over the first couple of days so if you uh, if they're still available get up there and get your hands on some ticket goodness all in partnership with AIB check out hashtag the toughest for more on all of that right now it's time at uh, gone 10 to 9 to turn our attention back to the rugby delighted to say we're joined on the line again by former Ireland international Anna Capeless morning Anna well lads how are you how are you getting on Good, good now. More sport this morning, is it? There's a fair bit of sport, yeah. That's the common theme on this. Sometimes we squeeze in some other stuff, but generally there's a lot going I'm thinking on. Of, I'm thinking of changing sports. I think I'll become a snooker fan. Ah, go for it. Well, I mean, Shane's recommendation there, Anna, that you, know, you can have a doze know, off in the middle it of just, it was definitely appealing to me. That was. I know, I was just listening to it there, like, <laughs> especially all the all the drama and women's rugby. I think I need something a bit more calming. <laughs> well, you've segued beautifully into the uh, first thing that we need to ask you about. Um, we will come to talk about the game because there's plenty to get into and um, we will do that, Ireland-Italy, of course. Um, but first of all, the Telegraph article. Um, we'd spoken to you a couple of weeks ago and um, you touched on the reasons behind your own own decisions to walk away and it felt like actually looking at some of the stuff that had come through um, in the article was um, reminded me of what you were talking about and obviously we had the Ireland head coach Greg McWilliams out in the meantime uh, to reflect on that we Fiona Hayes on the uh, Six Nations show yesterday Anna, and she was saying that um, she was only surprised by the fact that people were surprised by the stuff that came out that it wasn't necessarily new news Absolutely yeah I was reading it like uh-huh you know <laughs> pretending to be shocked kind of a thing because yeah not none of it's new to me none of it's new to anyone who's been involved in women's rugby for for quite some time will have um experienced things like this kind of um you know a, an alarming amount of sexism and then i read through it and i was like you know that's it's kind of um 
there's definitely more to it. And I always say, like, the, the story of Irish women's rugby is like a big, massive jigsaw. And everyone has a piece that they could contribute to it. And, you know, every player will have their own story. And sadly, a lot of it is is stories of, like, frustration and, and disappointment. And um, so, you know, this, te- this you know, Telegraph article was, wasn't wasn't news to me. And I think I agree with Fihaz. They're saying, like, she was surprised that people were surprised. I think people are surprised less and less, to be honest. Mm. And I think the, the overwhelming response, it's it's... In a way, it's it's nice to see. Is there some kind of comfort to be taken in the fact that people are like, we've had enough of this. Like often before, and, and certainly in the past few years, if something like this would come out, it's, you know, people kind of get back to it saying and respond saying like, ah, oh, the women giving out again. Those responses are becoming less and less because people are like, what are, what's, something else, something else. What We need to sort this out. We need to support the girls. And, we need, and I, th- I feel like th- there's, so much support for the girls now and people really understand that the girls and these results are not reflective of of the squad and the ability of the squad it's their support that that comes in i think that's kind of becoming very clear to like fans of the game and and followers of of rugby in general and sport in general in ireland now because we want this team to succeed yet here we are again talking about more sexism and like you know the 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 shorts and the contracts and all that like when can we actually talk about the rugby we have to just like i'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about this we have to talk about this when are we going to get to a stage when we can talk about this less and less and talk about the actual performances more and more where we are in contention to win a six nations yeah like it is a very good point and as you say we have to talk about it and we and you're uh, I know you're not suggesting we don't talk about it because it's important that yeah. when it comes up now and the fact that it's come up as an international story as well I think it's important and almost that point and it feels like we need to be hearing from players like yourself who've been recently in the system or players who are currently in the system like what's what the at the minute we have an absence of people who fit that profile who are coming out to say everything here is brilliant we've learned all the lessons from the past and this has been fixed and this has been fixed and the communication is good it feels like we're missing that piece at the minute I've been trying to think of I agree with you and I've been trying to think of an analogy to kind of explain this really in, in non-rugby terms or see how else this could be related to, to you know how, how these processes happen in life. So, for example, like I used to be a teacher in England and all the schools get graded um, from outstanding is your top level, um, good, um, requires improvement and failing or, or whatever. And if you are a failing school and you, 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 know, you make an overhaul and you appoint new staff and you bring in... you they're not going to say like they don't just say okay great we've made these changes now off you go no you get a review every month everything is reviewed there's like an overhaul of you know staff systems everything so like in the recently you know with the appointment of like new staff we can't just be like right we'll leave you off now we trust you to do it all no this is a requires improvement slash failing situation Mm. we're not going to just sit back and be like okay um, you know, th- that's fine. If we're losing, it's fine because we trust what's going on. Maybe, 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 maybe they are doing the right thing and we don't see it yet. I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical and I've said that before. I'm skeptical and, and I'm cynical because of what I've been through as a player. 
So I'm just not going to sit here and be like, okay, we'll take your word for it. You know, when someone turns around and says, no, everything's fine. I won't, I can't take your word from it. And you're right. There are players like me who've come out recently and that are standing up because we know that current players can't. I know that um, from myself. Like I could never say what I really wanted to. I'm trying to do that now as best I can while still, you know, keeping like the, the, my my friends, like the players who are still in the squad and the girls that even I don't know, keeping them in in my thoughts all the time by the, the things that I say and how I go about how I say things. And everyone is like that. The thing here is we all want the same thing. We all want Irish women's rugby to start performing. And I think the IRFU has done a good job in making us, making it seem like we're against each other somehow, the former players, against the current players, against the management, against the sevens, against the fifteens or whatever. I don't know. I, I just think that we all have to remember that we all want the same thing here and that is to improve and compete and like get to the same level of of, of rugby that, that our men's team is at and our under twenties team is at and like have fair chances at really performing and competing. Um, obviously the are if you've came out in response to Fiona Thomas's article to say, well, we've put these structures in place. And that's fair enough, obviously, like you say, in terms of um, a union or an association or any governing body where it's been identified that there's stuff that needs to be improved. And I think, uh, demonstrably, there is stuff that's been improved and there's obviously more work to be done in that regard and they will defend themselves in relation to that. And Greg McWilliams obviously was out to um, put forward to do that yesterday as well. Can you just talk to us, Anna, about your own experience if you can, just in relation to the stuff that you read in relation to, you know, you mentioned about the shorts. Obviously, you spoke to us before about the communication of team selections. What can you tell us about your own experience of uh, the the pieces that you read in that article? Um, yeah, I think that's that squad selection kind of issue, I that affected me a lot as a player I was in the receiving end of that lots of girls were in in terms of being forgotten to be told that you were dropped or forgotten to be you know told in advance of um, a meeting and suddenly you look at the screen and your name's not there that's that's um, that's hard to talk about because that's a that's the management themselves how they managed that was um, but, but they managed it badly, depending on you know uh, uh, what what coaches were involved at the time. There was always mistakes around this. But I think that can, can I ask you, Anna? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Can I just ask you on that because some of what's been said here from Greg McWilliams was that this is why is this article coming out now? This is historic stuff. Can you give us a timeline on what you're talking about? I mean. And I, I can only speak of my experiences, even though whoever was interviewed for this has a similar story, you know, and, and, and I, but I'll only, I'll only speak for myself. Yeah. I left the squad in, um, it was the previous management. Um, so, oh my God, I can't keep track of the years now. 2019, 20, was it? 2022 is when I, I was, was dropped from the squad for the last time. And then I, I, I decided to, to take myself out of, to, to retire. Um, but that, you know, that's only, you know, a couple of months before that or a year before that, you know, if he's saying it's historic, <laughs> I don't agree with that statement. And do you, do, you, do, you, do you have a sense from what you're hearing or what you've experienced um, of 
whether things have improved since then? I'm obviously not in the squad. So from the outside looking in, I feel like no. And that, that you know, to say that it's historic, I don't, I don't, I don't think, like, what does historic mean? When does that come into mm. effect? Like, if you still have players that are suffering from those, you know, the, the trauma of something like that happening before, um, that's not historic. That's still current. You still have to deal with that within the current members of the squad, if there are current members of the squad who still you know, have a fear that that could happen or it's happened to them before. Like, even though it might not have been you as a coach, you still have to mm. value that in your player's experience. And, and you know, and, and I think the reason that these errors keep happening is from the top down, there's no fear for them that they're going to be reprimanded for making an error like this or that there's like a worry. It was just you know, pure casual, like, oh, sorry about that, when actually your whole whole world has fallen apart in a moment. And like, whoops, on their behalf, because there's no real consequence for them to have, um, you know, to, to have just missed you off a list or forgot to text or forgot to call. Like, that's massive, you know, the difference in experience for them, which is like, whoops, versus oh my God, you know, everything I've worked for here isn't, is, hasn't, hasn't worked out for me. Like that, the difference in that is massive and it's a recurring trend. Um, whether, whether it's happening in the current squad, from the, from the article tells us that, that it is. So um, I, I, I don't know what else to, to mm. add. And, and it's even the, the, the lack of something small, like the lack of protein supplements available to players for the third of Japan last summer. And, and, and even the derogatory comment about, about the alleged derogatory comment about women's rugby at the president's dinner as well. Like, did the likes of that comment surprise you, Anna? <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm here laughing because I've heard that comment a million times. Like, <laughs> I hear it all the time. I still hear it from, you know, people in rugby, supporters, fans. I have people writing to me privately to tell me that no one gives an F about women's rugby. <laughs> you see it, you can see it, you can read it. Like, and you know, these might be fans, but people in um, positions of power that, you know, that also doesn't surprise me. I know like um, someone I know that um, she was telling me about a committee meeting she, she was, she had attended. And this also isn't new. And if you're a club that doesn't behave this way, I'm not, I'm not, referring to you but if you're a club that behaves this way i am referring to you there are like you know the the the, the contents of the meeting so they'll go through like starting with um senior men senior seconds senior thirds under 20s under 18s under 15s under 13s under 10s minis right is that everything covered and you know the women have to say excuse me what about the women referring to everything after you've talked about the minis mm. section? That's not strange. And if you're a club who's changed that and you go from men's senior team to women's senior team to under twenties, good, well done. Like, or even starting with the women's agenda, like depending on like what days of the season you're at or whatever, but it's not, that's not, um, that's not unusual to have the women's matters dealt with, as people are getting up out of their chairs in a, in, in a club. And, and these are the people who go on to, you know, um, 
work in you know get senior roles in in, in the provinces and the union or whatever that's not unusual um, I don't want you to feel badgered by these questions and we will move on to talk about uh, rugby in a minute but I do think that it was important that we that we chat about it when you say there's people writing to you Anna what do you mean just just I don't even know like they <laughs> I'd like to say that they're trolls but some of them I can see like what club they're connected to or their fans or their players or, or, or whatever and they'll you know write to me saying like it, it only happened recently I had a really bad week there recently because I put out something um Oh, actually, sorry, it was in response to the Tiger Woods thing. And I sent a tweet mm. and the amount of abuse that I got from rugby fans. And I can see that they're rugby fans, mm. you know, and they'll say in their profile, follower of whatever province, uh, whatever club. And they'll be associated. So I can see that these people exist within clubs that have no time to listen to like um, women's players or athletes or whatever and, and women's sport and whatever for them is just like yeah. not just irrelevant an actual problem for them for them to go out of their way and write to me um, and I took it down off my Twitter in the end because I'd had such a bad week of, of receiving stuff like this and then people went and found me on my other social media platforms and wrote to me even though I hadn't like put anything there um, so you know it's easy to, to find someone in rugby like someone like me, who, a former player who's you know active on social media, um, it's easy to find me and, and write to me and tell tell me what you really think. Mm. So um, yeah, that's that's what I was referring to there. Okay, it's um, it's a level of bonkers. I think that um, is uh, and and I also think that there's an element of we tend to talk about this stuff of. Um, it being faceless social media and certainly some of the stuff that uh, we've seen here over the last few weeks um, in relation to various bits, the facelessness of it is the, the the fact that it is actual, you can easily identify who people are is mm. the thing that's starting to, um, that I definitely caught me a bit by surprise and was uh, unusual. The one, just to yeah. leave, it on, leave it on this and move on to talk about the game, but the thing that sort of struck me about it is that like it's hard for people to hear stuff that's not, good, that doesn't reflect well on them, right? Like, that's just a human mm -hmm. trait. Somebody says, this thing you need to work on, your initial reaction can be defensive. So whether you're an individual or an yeah. organisation, that can be the case. And that was the one area of disappointment that I had um, over the last 48 hours, that there wasn't an element of uh, officialdom in Irish rugby saying, okay, okay, we actually, we thought we were sort of a little bit down the line. It's kind of clear that we're not, and there's a bit more work to be done. Will you just can we can we take that away? Can we think about it? Can we come back with some sort of a thought through response? That just bit seemed to be lacking. I completely agree, and I'm just wondering who is it going to take? Who is going to be the person to say that? Yes, yes, you're right, and I, I have to I have to comment on the, the you know the comments from 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 Greg, like you know for him to say no, this isn't a sexist organisation. Why can't you just you know? not just you as in, in terms of Greg, why can't someone just say, yes, we're dealing with this. We're going to do everything we can to, to make sure that we can eradicate this, the, you know, this, this title and the, this behaviors and, and, you know, to, to flat out, to stand up and say, no, I, I don't think so. I was really annoyed at that. And, um, you know, stand up for your girls, stand up for the players. Who's going to stand up for the players. Who's going to say, yes, we understand this. We're going, we're doing everything we can to change this. Instead of saying, no, it doesn't exist. Stand up for the girls. Like, 
please, someone, who's it going to be to say, yes, we recognise this? Because every time that there's been someone to, to stand up and put out a story like this or an article, you're absolutely right, they've acted in a defensive way and said, no, this isn't the case. Even in that article, it was like, oh, we can't comment on this because we don't know who the player is. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is or isn't. Like, let's say, okay, an error. We made an error. We're, we acknowledge it. We recognize it. We want to move on. But up till now, like, and, and there's a few other things in that article that really struck me, like, you know, that that, that Greg and, and, and David Nusifora sat down to make a plan and that they're on track with the plan. How could you be on track with the plan? Was the plan to come last in the Six Nations? Because that's what we're on track for now. Mm. Is that the plan? Was that really the plan? And these are the comments that make me feel like, make me feel like we're undervalued. You know, that that's, it's it just, it, there were so many things like, you know, the, historic, it's not historic. It's not nearly irrelevant. We're not on track. Like these are all, like if you could, if we could just see, you know, stop the defensive attitude and say, no, this is all perfect. It's not perfect. Please acknowledge that. And please, like, let's say that this is where we're at. We are doing everything. Because I know there are some brilliant people in the IRFU. And if this is how it, difficult it seems from the outside, I can imagine it's very difficult for people on the inside to also achieve things. But let's recognize it and, and move on together. Because at the end of the day, we... We, we all want the same thing here. We're not on different teams. We're all on the same team. We all want the same thing. Let's work together. Stop pipping us against each other. It's not, you know, like I already said, you know, the, the groups against each other. That's not what this is. We need to move forward together. I presume if one of those people in the RFU is to pick up the phone later on today or over the next couple of weeks and say, Anna, you've been through this over the last while. You've been vocal about it. Can we grab a coffee and chat through your experiences of it? That's something you're open to. Absolutely. But I don't, if, yeah, absolutely, 100%. That's why, that's what I promised myself when I retired, that I would contribute to this journey as best I could. Um, but yeah. no one in the RFU ever spoke to me again after after Greg, William, Greg McWilliams called me the day to, 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 told me I wasn't, to tell me I wasn't going to be in the squad. No one ever spoke to me ever again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't um, foresee it. I'd say um, away from the constraints of uh, live broadcast, that would be um, probably a smart uh, thing for the RFU to do. We'll see um, how that plays out over the next while. Thanks for giving at it. I know it's a, it's a hard one for you to get into, so I appreciate it. Mm. Um, let's talk about the rugby. Obviously, a couple of heavy defeats, a pivotal game now against Italy, uh, England and Scotland come after that. What is the, have, is there... Um, Without going back into the conversation we've just had, in terms of the playing side of it, is there like a renewed, is there a different um, target for this group now? And is the, is the, has the success measures changed for them, given what's happened over the first couple of games? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that it's, it's funny, you know, and after the result of the, the French game and there was a lot of, um, you know, kind of negative um, uh, critique and everything, which, which was, you know, warranted with the, with the scoreline against a 14-man or a 14-woman uh, French side. So for me watching that, I, I, I took away loads of positives. I was like, that was great. This moment was great. That moment was great. So I can imagine, like, within the squad, they are feeling like, look at that moment. Look at what we achieved there. 
and let's build on those moments because there were some brilliant, like some set piece, um, massive wins, like stealing the line outs and scrum wins and stuff like against France. And I think that they'll feel that if they can continue with those like uh, moments, like, you know, small wins to, to transfer them into like bigger wins, um, they'll be they'll be happy. So I think, yeah, they know where they're at now. Um I think the, the kind of interesting thing about this is that Italy, I think Italy are scared of Ireland. Um, and I think that Italy is like another world of rugby that will have very little idea of, of the media coverage that Ireland has been getting. They'll obviously see the scorelines and they'll have done their homework on Ireland. But in terms of all this extra conversation around Ireland that the Welsh women and the English girls and the, and the Scottish girls are very aware of, Italy isn't aware of that. They don't know about all these extra stories. They don't kind of seem to be, you know, in, in, a, in a separate little rugby world over there. And that's fine for them. But I do think they have a fear. I think they have a fear of Ireland. So I think for Ireland coming into this game, this will be key, like a key performance and a, a place to, to pick up points. The two sort of pivotal areas um, watching the uh, our own uh, Six Nations show yesterday seem to be identified as our own unstructured attack, which might be a function of being constantly on the back foot, of course. And then Italy, the ferociousness at which they went at the breakdown against France. Mm-hmm. Two areas that potentially decide the outcome of this. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, well... Italy, Italy are they're they're similar to their men's team. They're kind of put put together like a couple of like amazing phases and just can't seem to finish things off. Um, now I, they have some they've some picked up some great experience at the World Cup and they had some real standout players. So that will obviously like start to change. They had a very tough two opening rounds, you know. So we'll be very battle hardened from England and France. Um, and their physicality will be massive. But, you know, Ireland have just played France as well. So they'll it'll be a similar level they'll meet at in the middle um, at the breakdown. And, you know, if, if Ireland can can kind of sort out their nomination in defence and communication defence to, like, nail those, like, missed tackles, that's, that'll be huge for them. Like, and no doubt that they'll have worked on that. Like, any player who missed a tackle the last day is going to be like, I ain't missing a tackle on Saturday here in Parma like that's so if that can that small detail can be rectified then um, that will that will change the, the, the flow of things and are we going to get it are we going to get finally get a W on the board I always I always want to say yes because when you're a player and which is only you know recently for me you believe that you will and you know the, the last time in, in, in Parma for, for the Irish team um, was wasn't they're not good memories, but we did beat Italy. Um, and when you're going into this this match with all you've learned from the first two games and the whole world on fire outside of your squad, you're all you're talking about is how do we get the win here? Because absolutely they believe they can. Um, so yeah, I'm going I'm going to back them and I'm going to say that that yeah we we, we can. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, there's uh, plenty in our chat over the last 20 minutes. And as I said a little bit earlier, um, I we appreciate you've been open and honest about that stuff. It's, I think, important for now that we have those conversations. And yeah. as you say, let's uh, hope again in six months or whatever length, length of time it takes that we're in a position where we can just talk about the rugby. We'd be delighted to do that. Um, but for the minute, Anna, thanks a million. Thanks.
Thanks, lads. Anna Keblis on the line there, uh, looking ahead to the weekend's rugby and reacting as well to um, what's going on uh, with Irish rugby during the week. Uh, uh, now, where are we off to? Are we going to take an ad break? Or we are. Thanks, Anna. It's uh, quarter past nine. We're going to talk about uh, Nardine Chowdhury's new book, Inchilla United, after these. OTB. AM. We've been uh, promising this one for, I think, about uh, three or four weeks. I'm delighted to say he's in danger now of becoming a friend of the show, but delighted to welcome back to the show, Naradine Chowdhury. Naz, how are you doing? Yeah, good. How are you doing? Very good. We, we plan to talk to you about United, but we've no time for any of that messing around. Uh, we want to give uh, all the time we have uh, to the book, which I've been listening to the audio book over the last um, couple of weeks and thoroughly enjoying it. Um, and I wondered, was it a book that you had been writing in your head over the years, or was it a more of a latter day? I must do this. Well, it was. It's, it's interesting because um, there was like, a, do you know, like with transfers, you always get um, teams having to woo a player or sort of convince them to sort of join or whatever. Like it was a little bit like that, where the, the publishers approached me and kind of said, "Do you want to write this book?" And then there was like a six week, sorry, six month period where I was like saying. I don't know about this. Like, there's nothing interesting about me. No one wants to read about me. So, um, yeah, it took a bit, a bit of convincing for me to actually write the book because, um, I think as with, as with most people, you kind, if somebody asked you to write a book about yourself, you'd be like, well, what's happened? I've not, I've not sort of saved a kid from drowning or I've not sort of, uh, escaped to like a war torn situation. I've just, I've just grown up in Crumpsall. So, um, but yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I was convinced to do it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it was, it's really just something that, um, came about because I was asked to do it and then it was just a case of like um, how I go about it and how much football I put in it how much of myself yeah. I put in it yeah it's always a hard balance to get right and um, was there a point where in that six months or once you started writing the book where you thought oh no actually this there is something there this is I, I do have a story to tell yeah I mean I think I think what I decided pretty early on is that it, there's no point in doing a, a history of United over over that sort of um, um, late eighties um, and and the whole of the nineties period, just because it's done before. Like if anyone wants to know what happened during that period, there's 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 loads of better writers than me that can go into lots of detail about about individual games and individual results. Um, so I decided that um, the best way to do it was to be dead personal. So a lot of it, I mean, I, I, obviously a, a lot of it is to do with football, but it's about how football impacted my life rather than uh, going through every single result. Um, so a lot of it's just about, um, and again, like my parents came from, over from Pakistan, so they didn't have a club. So I didn't inherit a club. So a lot of it's about um, finding football, getting passionate about football, um, growing up in Manchester. So you, you couldn't escape it really. Um, but also stuff like uh, getting into like Manchester music, getting into Manchester fashion, all, all that kind of stuff. I loved how it could have been uh, um, Harlequins Inshallah, I presume, is uh, <laughs> going to ring a bell for you. Or like, uh, it could have e- easily have been City Inshallah either. Well, that's it. Again, it's, but, but I think this is with everyone, but especially with um, communities uh, from a diaspora community, whether it's um, sort of people from Pakistan or, 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 or people from sort of the West Indies or Ireland or anywhere, is that um, your parents decide where to settle. But you, you don't. You, you're just born there. So um, I could easily have, my family could easily have settled in Brixton or Liverpool or or Newcastle or, or even Toronto or somewhere abroad. So it's uh, they happened to settle in Manchester, and and then it was a case of um, 
Uh, thankfully, it wasn't a Harley Quinn, so it was, and, and I could uh, be saved from uh, salmon trousers, and it was more a case of like, is it City or United? But it's funny because that that decision of which football team to choose to support or any sporting team to choose to support, sometimes it's not a decision, sometimes it's passed on by a, by a parent or whatever. But you you you, you touch on the book, you, two of your mates when you were a kid, Terence and Thomas, and uh, there was a great line from the book. You said. Uh, Everyone, everything else being equal, it should have been City, as Adrian said. Terence was a better mate, plus he had Panini spares of the likes of Jason Beckford and Andy Dibble to sweeten the deal. You went with Thomas, though, in the end. Why was that? It was it was purely because 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 the thing is, Terence was was a was a closer mate, but Thomas was just obsessed. Uh, I mean, and and I think that's always incredibly um, sort of uh, attractive in anything where somebody is so passionate about something that uh, you can't help. But be interested as well, um, and it's a, it's a little bit like 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 I'll, I'll meet somebody who's mad about about rugby or mad about um, anything, and and suddenly that thing takes on more importance just because they care about it so much. Um, so so yeah, it's it's just the fact that my mate Thomas was just obsessed with United, and and that attracted attracted me more than anything. And th- the funny thing is that um, obviously United have always been uh, like historically the bigger club, but at that time, I think both clubs were kind of struggling, and uh, it was just unfortunate that because, because City City were in the second tier at that point, and they'd got promoted, so there'd been a few years where I'd got into football and did not, did not been a derby. Um, but then uh, in '89, there was the five-one, and and I, and I thought, oh no, I've made the wrong decision. <laughs> It's very much uh, definitely, and, and particularly in the latter day, in light of how, how good City have got recently. You, you mentioned a bit earlier on, just obviously about it. Not, um, I can't remember actually. Did you say it was not quite a football book, or there's not a huge amount about the football bit in it? Like it does feel as if it's a book about like belonging, belonging, or like being part of something almost kind of uh, bigger than yourself. And you speak about the challenges of a uh, the come for a kid of a uh, first generation immigrant family. Has your experience? Because like these are themes that are. Like it was really interesting to read, in my case, listen to your experiences of um, I don't want to put an age on you, but like thirty odd years ago, um, and what it was like growing up around football at that time. And I just was interested to, to get your view on the difference of that time versus now, and whether like football slash society has moved on to be a more inclusive environment for people of all backgrounds or no. Um, well, it's funny because when I was growing up, things were things weren't great. There was lots of racism. There was lots of, um, funnily enough, there was it was more to do. There was more racism about um, people like me being Pakistani rather than being Muslim. Whereas it's kind of flipped the other way around now. But throughout the time I was growing up, and as bad as it was, especially in the like in the eighties and then in the nineties, there was always a sense that over time things will get better. And you, you kind of saw that, and uh, and you thought people are going to get more um, sort of welcoming of different people. People are going to mingle, have have communities where there's all sorts of uh, uh, sort of multi multicultural influences, and and year by year, um, people will become uh, more accepting of, of everyone, um, and that's certainly how it felt. But then there's that there's there's that kind of heartbreaking realization that you get where you kind of think actually life's not like that it's not it's not a sort of it's not a an incline of things getting better what it is is cyclical so you will you will have situations where you feel as if people are being accepted more and and racism and prejudice and xenophobia and and um 
prejudices against like the LGBTQ plus community and things like that, uh, that's going to get better. But then there's a there's a whole new wave of hatred and 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 that's that's one of the sad things. That's it's not quite included in the book because the book sort of ends in 1999 for for obvious reasons. But then a few years later, there's there's 9/11. And and all the sort of um, fallout of that, and and yeah, and it's and and and, and then you've got the the rise of of, of right wing politics around the world. So it's a it's a little bit of a bittersweet thing that where you you kind of expect that things are going to get better, and then and then uh, and then you realise life's not always like that. No, but certainly not. And yet you have this intricate, beautiful way of of. Describing the the even the football match day experience with with your faith as well, the communal nature of going to a match even as early as the prologue you're talking about, uh, and, and it's great advice as well if everyone's anyone's ever going to a match, take out the AirPods, get out of stop earlier on the tram. There's that sense of belonging. Um, it's it's almost even for people watching or listening who aren't religious, it almost is a religious experience for people heading to a match. Completely, and and, and again, it's in in one sense it's very easy to sort of crowbar that analogy uh, and and sort of try and bring this artificial sort of comparison between football and religion together. But, but there, there are similarities and whether it's, whether it's going to a pub or whether it's uh, having a community sort of um, sort of social club or whether it's, it's a church or a, or a mosque. I think a big part of that is doing something together. You have your internal beliefs and you have your sort of internal sort of morality. But then beyond that, what makes religion or anything like that special is you are part of, of something. You you have you all have a core belief. And you may be different in loads of ways, but you you have this one thing that you have in common. And in a lot of ways that is mirrored by football in, in a different way, in, in that um growing up i had so many different identities that i was coming to terms with especially as a teenager i think everyone has everyone's just finding the way everyone's rebelling against the parents everyone's trying to be an individual everyone's trying to bind their tribe and being pakistani muslim um working class mancunian there's, there's loads of different things that you come to terms with and and some things you're more proud of than others and then you you grow to be proud of everything but the great thing about football is is you ad- you identify yourself as a fan and suddenly you're welcomed in and it doesn't matter who you are or what your background is you've all you've all got that one thing in common and that's all that matters and and people will have you back people will uh befriend you and talk to you in a way that doesn't always happen in other parts of life and and that's the that's the great thing about things like music and it's a great thing about things like sport and football in that um, it breaks down all sorts of barriers and suddenly you find yourself becoming friends with people that you, in, in any other situation, you'd never meet and, and you, pro- you probably wouldn't talk to. And, and that's a that's a beautiful thing a, a, about football. And, and that's why um, that's why it, it means so much because it, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter this much. Like even, even like all the sports that you've, that you've discussed on your show today or, or, or every day you record, none of it should matter. It's sport. It's people running about. Like why do, why does it, why are people so obsessed with it? And the reason why people are obsessed is because a, it's something you can share with other people around the world and in your community. But also it's that thing of, you you work your life you work five days a week or you or you do this job or that um and and then 
once or twice a week, you forget about all of that and you can escape into this thing that sometimes can break your heart, but sometimes can be amazing. But it's it's this thing that you all do together. Um, that's an incredible point, that one about like seeking out things that actually uh, that we have in common, which is just like not what we tend to do as societies. Like there's, um, I was struck by your comments earlier on, there's a hashtag on the rise here, unfortunately, which is uh, Ireland is full. Uh, you can imagine the, I wouldn't recommend you look it up anytime soon, but you can imagine the um, ideas uh, that are behind that. Um, trying to create points of difference with people is was there because it feels like the um and I was going to say early but maybe not all that early bubbling up of brexit style philosophies and and um thought processes uh was did it feel like that was a pivotal moment Nas, for you in terms of that sort of like it feels like that sort of flushed people out of the middle ground almost you had to kind of either either I'm for inclusiveness or I'm part of those uh horrible hashtag uh, hashtag movements yeah well i mean you talk about sort of writing the book and, uh, and and I was talking about how I thought that no one would be interested in this book and therefore why write it? Because I didn't want to do something just for the sake of it. But once I started to think about it and once I started to, start to think about the kind of book that I wanted to write, um, one thing that was really important to me was to show people that I am, I am an Asian person. I am of Pakistani heritage and I am proudly Muslim. I'm not just culturally culturally Muslim. I am I'm a practicing Muslim. But if you read the book, hopefully you'll realize that I'm just like you. Like like there's there's so many similarities in the way we enjoy life, the way some things happen in our lives, like 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 uh, the book covers um death the the the, the deaths of loved ones, um mm. It covers sort of uh, euphoric things and sad things, but there's so many similarities between us. And you talk about that hashtag and you talk about all the rampant um, prejudice that goes on in the UK as well, especially fueled by the right-wing press. And I guarantee that all these people who are who are saying certain places are full or they don't want these people to come here, they have not met those people. That's why um, if you look at the demographic or if you look at, look at a map of places that voted Brexit or, or sort of places with certain prejudice uh, or bigoted uh, political views, it's always places that don't have that multiculturalism and it's always those, those places that are, that are away from the city centres, the, the inner city areas where people have met pe- people of different backgrounds, have... I've gone to school with them, go to work with them, and realise that there's no difference between you. Mm-hmm. And 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 if and if there's one if there's one thing I'd love for the book to achieve, it's for somebody who's maybe not met a Muslim or not met somebody with from a Pakistani background to read it, and it just gives them a different view of what a Muslim or a Pakistani person is compared to what they will read in like the Daily Mail or whatever. I think um, there's an Irish songwriter and a singer and a poet called Imelda May who, like, in relation to um, Ireland, specifically says we don't get the right to be racist for um, historic reasons of emigration. And, uh, I mean, I think that uh, that definitely sums it up. Not that anybody in that uh, hashtag is going to be too interested in um, what Imelda May has to say, of course, but uh, that's unfortunately what you're dealing with. This book is lots of fun. It's... um, uh, I listened to the audiobook. There was loads of laugh out loud moments. You love a good list, now as it turns out, as we do around here. <laughs> a nice top five. Uh, your top five players from the nineties. 
This is this plays well with an Irish audience. <laughs> yeah, with well, a Cork a Cork audience, I should say. I was going to say particularly a Cork audience. Yes. I mean, it's it, it had to be. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I had to include uh, Roy Keane, but then Dennis Irwin, what a player! <laughs> um, I actually, I actually, everyone talks about because there's certain players who are so underrated. And everyone talks about them being underrated. That like in a funny way they become overrated because mm. everyone's talking about them being underrated. But I still believe that Dennis Irwin is incredibly underrated to this day. Like I think I think there's assumption there's an assumption with people who've not seen him play that he was incredibly dependable and a seven out of ten player every week, and that's what made him so great. And it's not. He was a nine out of ten player every week. He could do everything. He mm. could he could he could play both both fullback positions with ease. He was two footed. He would he, he these days you've got, you've got players um, who play fullback that are either very good defensively and poor going forward, or or the opposite are amazing going forward but then defensively weak. He was it would be difficult to identify what he was better at, mm. and and yeah and, and and I had to include him and but then obviously. Kino, um, he had to be in there, but yeah, and uh, I, but I think uh, yeah, um, my number one choice won't be a, won't be a surprise to anyone, especially in that era. And it's even the cult heroes as well. <clears throat> Naz, like you mentioned, Andre Kanchelskis, and you're talking about laugh out loud moments. Uh, one of the lines you had, um, he a precocious precociously talented footballer from the USSR, me an asthmatic little Asian kid with a stutter and a dream, a Cold War thawing foreign exchange program that only one of us was aware of. Like, and he's one of those players as well, Kanchelskis, that that is probably under the, the term cult hero, but to remember players like that that just bring you straight back in the blink of thought to, to your childhood must be nice. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there was there was tough times writing the book because it, obviously it's like a, it's almost a, a weird kind of therapy to sort of go back to your childhood and remember stuff that you'd forgotten about. But there was great moments as well. And uh, yeah, uh, and, and it would seem weird to some people that... Uh, the thing is, like... Apart from Cantona and Kinchelskis, I don't think I really devote that much time to individual players. And so it might seem a little bit strange of all the star players that we had during that period. Um, I kind of zoned in on Kinchelskis as one of them. But again, it's it's about how it made you feel at the time. It's not it's not me as an adult retrospectively looking back and thinking, oh, that was a really important player. That was a really important game. If that was the case, then I'd, then I'd be focusing on United winning the doubles, but... Uh, and 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 and, uh, and 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 certain other important trophies, but to me, growing up, the the, the European Cup Winners' Cup uh, win in nineteen ninety one was seminal, and Andre Kachelskis was just magic to me. I look back m- far more fondly on Andre Kachelskis than I do uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, and even if you take away any kind of controversy, I still would because. Football ultimately is how it makes you feel. It's not about who's got the best stats. It's not. It's not about who's got the best X, uh, XG or who's who's won the most most trophies. It's the it's the players that uh, gave you those special sort of uh, moments and those emotions at the time. And Kinchelskis is complete. It's absolutely up there. And 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 again, like it's slightly after the book, but I've got a massive, massive soft spot, soft spot for for Juan Veron, and he didn't exactly. Um, flourish at United, but I'm so glad he played for United, and and uh, and I will always remember some of his passes and some of his goals more than players who scored uh, hundreds of goals for us because because that because of the because the way he made me feel. Um, it's an incredible read, an incredible listen. I really enjoyed it. I, I must say, and um, it just the the tension with City is there all the time. Uh, the Brian Kidd 
that Brian Kidd and then this other guy over here and that Peter Schmeichel and this guy over here and Mark Hughes, who was your first footballing hero. Yeah, first, first footballing hero and, and first player that, that I went off rapidly. Yeah. I, but again, but again, it's, it's with, with, with United fans. There's this thing of like, there's there's Mark Hughes who used to play for us, Spark Hughes, and then there's there's Leslie. There's, there's Leslie Hughes who who went on to Sport City and was just this kind of like uh, bitter old man. So who looked who looked like a his like half a brother, of the, a member of the home home and away cast. <laughs> for for anyone thinking of buying the book as well, just even for the chapter titles, like there's for for anyone who's ever been in the Trafford End or in the pub around Old Trafford before a match, there's a famous chant: "Hello, hello, we are the Busby Boys." There's a chapter called Halal Halal, We Are the Muslim Boys, which is just the greatest <laughs> play on words I've ever heard. So even for the chapter titles alone, Naz, I think it's worthwhile. <laughs> I think any self-respecting United fan needs to get out and buy this. And uh, I'm not, and I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. So there's something in for everybody. It's called Enchilla United and available at uh, good and bad bookstores, online, audio bookstores, all of the above. Naz, it's always a pleasure. Thanks a million. Thanks a lot, and thank, thank you for not mentioning the game last night. I appreciate it. <laughs> we, we were out, out of time. We were like, we'd <laughs> set aside seven minutes at the top of the show to pour over, the, to pick through those seven or eight minutes uh, specifically. We'll do that again. Thanks a million. All right, see you. Thanks a lot. Nora Dean uh, Chowdhury. It's called Inchilla United and as I said, available at uh, all bookstores. Now, it's 20 to 10. Uh, OTBAM, which let Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back in the night edition available. Now, on Monday's show, there's going to be the Jet Labs uh, performance rankings. Alison Miller will review Ireland's game against Italy. Anthony Moyles on the weekend's football. Alan Quinlan on the URC and uh, that'll be live from South Africa. We'll have reaction to the Premier League as well and uh, that's pretty much it from us for the minute. Shane, good man. Cheers, Adrian. Fair Good play. Stuff. Enjoy the weekend. Uh, I know you're off to a game. Are you reporting? Are you? No, I'm there in a personal capacity in Healy Park. I know my for, You're doing like a corporate gig or something. No, no, just just there. Press it, shaking hands. You know, Tyrone Mullins. Looking flesh. forward to it. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now.